Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone. And you too, Mr. Real. Okay, Mr. cut it out. Mr. Cut it out back RF there in the back row. What's your, is it, is it radio, first name, free, middle name, Mormon, last name? Mm, do, I yes. just, do I just call you Mr. Mormon? Uh, or you could uh, abbreviate to Radio Freeman. Radio Freeman. Hey, um, before we get going on tonight's episode, by the way, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. Good. Glad you look it. well, I must say. I, I look a little disheveled, but I'm I'm here and uh, Ooh, disheveled. Yeah. Someone's uh, been winnowing the th the thesaurus. <laughs> hey, you know me. I'm just always trying to learn new things. <laughs> I, I got really onto that when I read Ignominious in the Book of Mormon, and I went and looked up, and that's like this really horrible, atrocious death. And that was when I fell in love with big words. Oh, well, wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm I'm sensing it's an unrequited love. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, a couple quick announcements before we get started. I love Excuse it. Excuse me. No, no, that's good. Okay, go ahead. okay. So let me uh, let me pull something up here on the screen first. Just a note: we're mm. having a special premiere down here in Southern Utah for Ronald's Little Factory. It's going to be a, a really touching, good time. You know what I mean? And. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of it's going to be a President Packer favorite, but we are doing that. It's Sunday, April 23rd, 7.15 to 9.15 p.m. Uh, I'm going to be hosting that, and uh, Brent Bacavoy will be doing a question and answer afterward. You're actually um, going to be there in person? He'll be there in person, and... And you are. And I'll be there in person. So, folks, if you are in Southern Utah, and this sounds interesting to you, I think it's going to be a fantastic time. There could be plenty of laughs and, and kind of a good time all around. When the show is completely over, there will be a private party for attendees, and we'll give out the address then at the at the actual showing. So it's a uh, private party, but for anybody who shows up? A private party for anybody in attendance at the show, not for just the general public. Yep, got it. And then, so there's that. And then let me uh, let me try to find the other thing here I wanted to put up on the screen. Uh, another thing I just wanted to, to announce is that Friday at 4 p.m., we are doing a premiere of a special episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast where we show how five white apologists fabricated and perpetuated a fictional black apologist named Richard Nigren who lived in Birmingham, Alabama. So this is the, the black Mormon apologist formerly known as Richard Nigren. This is the two images that were created uh, in his name. One of them, the one on the left there is, I believe, David Chappelle dressed up as Prince. I didn't know and he was a apologist. And the one on the right was an image taken off of a soccer video game, but both of those were used in connection with this story. Not by you, I hope. Not by me. I wouldn't touch something like this with a 10-foot pole. I could see 
the unhealthiness and at a bare minimum, what looks like really unhealthy optics from a long way away. Speaking of unhealthy optics, the person in the bottom right appears to be Daniel C. Peterson. He, you know, believe it or not, Daniel C. Peterson is, is involved. He is, uh, he is connected to this story. Uh, as you, yeah. And this story is insane, by the way, and it only got more insane because the more I let the crowd know that I had stuff on Mike, Mike Mm -hmm. seemed to feel the pressure to, in the need to kind of keep on responding. Mm -hmm. But as you probably know, in your field, uh, your career, uh, when people are guilty, the the worst thing they can do is to keep on talking. Yes, and frankly, when you're innocent, the worst thing you can do is keep on talking as well. That's been my experience. <laughs> yeah, but it's really bad if you're guilty. Yeah, especially when it keeps digging you deeper and deeper. And it did. <laughs> so there's that. So Friday, you are the puppet master in this entire scenario. What's that? You are the puppet master in this entire scenario. Uh, th- yeah, it'll be fun to watch this all unfold. And, and, you know, life does this to us. Sometimes we make mistakes and the best thing to do when we make a mistake is just to apologize. And that gives us a chance to kind of move on. But these guys kept trying to create a narrative to explain things and it, it doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yes. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. That's going to be Friday at, is that four o'clock? 4 p.m. Mountain time? time. Yep. 4 p.m. Okay. Mountain time on the Mormon Discussion Inc. YouTube channel. Uh, please join us then. It's going to be a fun place to, to be in the chat, I think, that night. And you've got some exciting surveillance video that you're going to be showing. Is that right? We have some audio taken from Family Pawn where Mike Parker, a- against his own judgments about why he created Peter Pan, came into someone else's places, place of work and confronted them. Oops. Let me... We don't, Is that we don't Peter want Pan that. music I hear? Uh, no, that's my daughter trying to call, and my phone was connected to the roadcaster. So well, I hope it's nothing there. serious. Do you need to take it? No, no, no. She'll call mom here in two seconds. Mom's out in the living room, so okay. we'll, it'll work out fine. It doesn't sound um, patriarchal at all. No, no, no. I'm in the middle of a live show. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to be. All right, let's uh, let's move on from that. Okay. And uh, whoop, let me change. We'll just get rid of this for a second, and let's bring on to the show our guest tonight. Uh, Jonathan Streeter. Jonathan, Jonathan, how are you? Streeter, yay! Do we have any applause hey. Jonathan Look at this. <laughs> it's great to be on. Yes, Jonathan canned applause. Streeter. Perhaps the, the, the perpetrator of the greatest hoax in Mormonism since the Kinderhood plates. <laughs> yes, it's actually the special topic for tonight. Let's... <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, I'm sorry. I, you, <laughs> by the way, heard, by the way Mike Parker, if Mike had me by. I can't hear you. Are you arguing and saying it's greater than the Kinderhook plates? No, I, I'm saying I've been waiting for my turn to uh, be here so that I couldn't get your jokes and and just stand <laughs> idly by while you laugh at your own humor. Mm. That's the best part of these shows. Well, thank you. At least somebody gets them, even if it's only myself. Um, just a quick note. We'll say one more thing about the fake apology thing and that whole escapade. If Mike Parker, if you're watching you could have learned a little lesson, which is when, when it gets figured out, just say you're sorry. Right. Right, John. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, when the, the, what you're describing happened there, that's going to be a hard one to uh, apologize Ooh, for. Yeah. And uh, we'll see. People are less prone to accept apologies now, even than 2018. No so kidding. We'll yeah. That was a tough yeah. go. We're not going to go into that, but it's very dark where you are. Are you like podcasting from cell block D? 
the bunker. No, I always podcast from outer darkness. That's that's where I am. <laughs> outer darkness. Oh. By the way, by the way, yeah, everybody right. wants one thing, and that's to see Yu-Gi-Oh. Can we see Yu-Gi-Oh, please? Yugi. Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> okay. This outer is the very evil He's my dog. co-host. He is so nice. evil, you can Yu-Gi-Oh. see it in his eyes. He's yeah. evil Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> Yugi, you're such a cutie. Go make your Tootsie Rolls on the floor. Oh, my God. All right, yeah. his reputation precedes him. He's laying some pipe. So, so John. No, it's a cable. He's laying some cable. It's been too long since they used that, that offensive. <laughs> All right, we've already gone into the sexually inappropriate comments by RFM. I'll, you can check that off your bingo cards. So, all right. It so, was, Streeter, catalogical. But. <laughs> Streeter, we brought you on to have a conversation it's for you. That's your business, Jonathan. <laughs> Let me know when you're ready, Arabella. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, several years ago, at this point, uh, I didn't even know who you were. I had no idea who the thinker of thoughts was. He's just some guy who's mm. thinking thoughts, and he was sharing his ideas on his thoughts on things and stuff. And uh, I went onto your website and I found a post called, and I was in the middle of a faith crisis and it said, Mm -hmm. fix your faith crisis with one weird trick. And I thought, Hey, I've tried a lot of things. Might as well try this too. And I read the article and I was deeply impressed with how you, without mentioning Mormonism once you walked a believing Mormon into understanding the issue of not only what a faith crisis is, because I think you describe it perfectly, um, but you give the person a full explanation of what apologetics are without really saying it, and a full explanation of what critical thinking skills are and how both those tools work and what their goals are. And I really felt like this the, the wood tools and steel tools were something that I was able to put in my own tool bag. And it became deeply helpful. And once I read this, I was able to spot wood tools and steel tools very easily. And I was hopeful Mm -hmm. that you'd come on tonight and walk us through this and help our audience understand wood tools and steel tools. (laughs) And, and maybe they will be able through this, if they haven't already put those tools in their tool bag as well. In five minutes or less. Five (laughs) minutes or less. Yep. We're going to take live calls. Well, if, if you know my podcast, it, it never goes down that, that quickly, but um, it, I'm glad to hear that it was something that you found that kind of um, stood out to you. And I think all of us in our various endeavors occasionally kind of hit gold where we'll, we'll produce something that has more of an impact than others. And so you'll, you'll hear other people referencing it more. And I know I've heard several people name particular items that both of you have put out, whether it's the apostolic coup d'etat or some of, I think with Bill, there's just so many of them that, um, you know, they, they, they turn into a blur. So this is one of the posts I think that I did early on that had that effect where, where people do frequently um, kind of message me and say, you know, this was one that was important. A little bit of background I think is helpful just to understand, you know, why in the world did I write this post anyway? Well, this is back in around 2014 where writing blog posts is kind of what the ex-Mormons did if you wanted to you know put your thoughts out there. Now it's like TikToks and YouTube and stuff like that. So it was a little bit more of a written word paradigm. But this is at a time where my me and my older brother would basically spend hours every day arguing about church stuff. And uh, it just, I kept hitting this wall where he would kind of do that circular reasoning thing where he, he would use 
claims from the church to prove that claims from the church were true, and it was just hard for me to try to get him to look at it a different way. So I, I said, I need to come up with something that is more memorable, but also something that actually doesn't even name Mormonism. And that you picked up on that. I intentionally did not refer, use the word Mormon in it at all, um, because I didn't want to trigger that defensiveness in my brother and get him to kind of read it. So that's the background of why it was written. And in terms of like the content of it, um, if there's any questions you guys have or anything, we can dive right in. Um, I have a question. And yeah, what's that? Did this have any impact on your brother? <sighs> I, I think the way that those discussions go is there's a lot of both for him and myself, there's ego involved. It's hard to admit when your perspective is modified on things. And I think over time, it perhaps caused him to look at these issues a little bit differently, but it, there was no immediate like, oh, you're right, I, you're right, I should, you know, I, I'm so sorry, nothing like that. But our relationship is really kind of where we can be firm and, and argue our point very um, passionately and still come away knowing that we love each other and we want the best for each other and we both consider each other to be good, honorable men, and that's kind of, that hasn't changed. Is he still an active member of the church? He, he is. Um, okay, I'm hearing epic fail. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, I I think, you know, in the years after this post came out, um, I've had some evolution in my own thinking, and I think the church has evolved as well in some aspects. And one of the things that I I kept in mind as I was writing this post was that I was having these discussions with my brother because I knew that his children would probably come to him with the same arguments. And I, I wanted him to be prepared, you know, to have thought through these things. Because when I first encountered a lot of the issues in church history, I, I had never encountered them before. I didn't have any answers. I didn't know what the arguments were. And so I felt like it was good, and he felt that it was a worthwhile endeavor to go through those conversations because it would prepare him for that. And, and so I think he's had that happen now. And... Um, and I, I don't, I'm not privy to his private conversations on, on how that went with him, but I know that he still finds a great deal of faith in the church and a great deal of meaning in his life in the church. So I can't, I can't um, fault him for that. Well, great. Tell us about these tools of yours. Okay, so we're going to get to the tools, but this whole conversation is not so much about the tools. It's funny because, like, I had some people, I still kind of keep my foot in the church apologetics groups that I can find, and some people thought that this was a talk about anachronisms in the Book of Mormon because we said there were steel tools and steel hadn't been invented yet. And so if that's what you thought, that's not the case. But it's not really even about the tools themselves. It's more about understanding how your own bias and epistemology can affect the way that you evaluate things, particularly in a high demand group. And so what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to do a thought experiment that pierces through the veil of some of those biases and some of those high demand controlling things to get you to understand why it is that somebody who's questioning the church uh, questions them and why some of the answers that they may that you may provide them aren't necessarily going to fix it. And so the first thing you have to understand, though, is that this is in the context of a faith crisis. So what is a faith crisis? It's helpful to understand what that is. Well, a faith crisis 
occurs when you discover factual information about your religion, its founder, its doctrine, or its history, which would seemingly contradict the claims of that religion. And the psychological and emotional distress that comes as you process the impact of that possibility on your life and your identity, which have been shaped by your belief in the religion, is what people will describe as a faith crisis. Does that sound like a good summary of a faith crisis to you guys? Mm-hmm. I, yes. And, and it, if this is the same one you had in your article too, like I thought yeah. that was beautifully written um, and it's very clearly kind of what everybody experiences in the midst of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's things that will kind of be inputs into the character of your faith crisis. Now, the first one that I talk about is your level of personal commitment. So you could be in, you know, the worst high demand religion possible but then you don't really take it all that seriously. You don't let it shape your life, your identity, um, or anything. And so whether or not it's like, if you discover it's not true, it's like, "Ah, I didn't really let it affect me anyway, so it's not a big deal. So your level of personal commitment factors into how severe a faith crisis is. Um, And I think that's why a lot of us that came out and like talk a lot about our faith crisis, because we were really committed. We were really devoted. We made a lot of really important, impactful decisions in our own personal Mm -hmm. life because of our belief in this thing. And so, and then it just so happens that then when we get out of it, we become the most blabby talk about it people that are out there just because it, you know, it's just like, it affected us. Speak um, for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then uh, the next thing is that the character of the religion itself will also have an impact on how severe it is. So I tried to draw a contrast between two different religions, specifically the Unitarian Universalists, where their religion is really, they don't make any exclusive claims about salvation or anything. They're, the goal of their, their organization is to help guide each individual on their own spiritual journey according to how they see that framework that they come to on their own terms. They don't, they're not dictated those terms from the group. And you contrast that then with something that is much more controlling, whether it's Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses, where there's a whole bunch of rules, a whole bunch of things that you can and can't do, and a whole bunch of activities expected of you. It's two very different things. Each of them makes a different level of claim on your life and your identity. And so if you decide that Unitarian Universalists aren't for you, and you go and you like stand up in the congregation and say that, people be like, okay, that's cool. You know. All wherever right. you want to go it's fine but if you do that in in some of these other high demand faiths it's like oh no we need to go in for a special auditing session who have you been talking to what have you been reading and you know you're going to go through disciplinary action like there's there's two there's completely different things and and i the thread through all of this is that this is not an argument for atheism it's not an argument for saying that all religion is false or that whatever religion that you're in you have to march out right away this is just kind of understanding that there's differences in the character of these religions what they demand of you and so having a crisis of faith is going to mean something different in one faith as it will in another. Yeah, okay. and, and in fact, there's in the in the article where you mentioned that juxtaposition between the universalist Unitarians and and you use Jehovah's Witnesses as the example, mm-hmm. you make mention of, you know, in a situation where you believed your religion all in and it told you that you couldn't use blood transfusions. Yeah. And so you refused a blood transfusion fusion to your child. And then you come to find out that the Jehovah's Witness faith is not true and that it manipulated its history and all the information. Mm -hmm. And you learn one day it's not what it claimed to be, that you having lost your child to what you believe is this ridiculous decision you made Mm -hmm. based on believing at a previous moment. And you can completely understand for the audience, you can completely understand why 
that person might not be able to leave their religion and leave it alone. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and not only does it increase. Like say that again. I spoke over you, RFM. I just said, how do you confront something like that? Yeah. As a parent, yeah. as a human being. Yeah. That your religious beliefs caused you to withhold a transfusion to your child who died as a result. And then you find out that the basis that you withheld the transfusion mm -hmm. on is yeah. wrong. Yeah. And, to that, and extreme, that can have. I was going to say, to that extreme, it is easy for all of us to go, no wonder you left but couldn't leave it alone. Yeah. And maybe for those who are listening as believers, maybe understand not to that degree, perhaps, but to a degree somewhere out in that, in that facet of the arena, the trauma was so significant to all of us when we learned that it was all not true and that we were manipulated into belief. Maybe you could understand why we can't leave it alone. Yeah. And there's other psychological dimensions there where if you did take an act that was contingent on a claim of the religion that had such a dramatic effect in your life, then there's a really strong and powerful bias for you not to look, not to confront the contradictory evidence because you understand what the implications of that would be. And so that's just a, a dark area in your life you, you never go and you avoid. And so I think from, from our perspective, we can then understand why some people may be very, very resistant to looking at criticisms of their faith group because there's powerful psychological characteristics that cause them not to do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, moving on, we, you know, the, the issue here is whether or not an organization is a high demand organization. And um, the, the more that the dictates of the religion affect the choices of the individual, the more that the individual's identity is tied up to the faith, the more that discovering the faith to be a fraud then causes the individual to acknowledge that intimate aspects of their life and identity were shaped by the deception. And I think the important thing that I wanted to try to convey to my brother was like, if you haven't actually confronted this abyss in your life, it's really hard to describe it and to get someone to really understand what it's like to go through a faith crisis that completely undermines your whole sense of being and existence and, you know, your hope for the afterlife and the nature of your relationships, the nature of your identity. Like these high demand religions make such powerful claims about all of that, that once you pull the thread and the whole thing comes undone, you're, you're kind of left in an existential crisis that, you know, we're describing as a faith crisis here. Yeah. Cool. So... With that, so now we understand kind of the nature of a faith crisis. The next question is, is a faith crisis a bad thing? And this is where we really try to step back and say, you know, if we're going to have a weird trick to fit, fix a faith crisis, any faith crisis, then we have to understand that not all faith crises are necessarily bad. It depends on where you stand. If you're someone in a high demand false religion, then a faith crisis is a necessary, although painful, ticket to freedom from that prison of belief. So another way of saying this is like to, to most people in religion A, a faith crisis to, in someone in religion B is a good thing because it frees them up so that they can be guided to the truth of religion A. And from that perspective, you could say that, um, you know, proselytizing is just a systematic way to try to induce faith crises in the minds and lives of people of other faiths. Um, and you see this play and, out in Mormonism. I mean, people, I was in the ward I was in, we had people deconstruct Catholicism and join our religion. And when they came in, when they came in the door and got baptized, we applauded them. We pushed them up to the pulpit, tell your conversion story. We're so yeah. excited for you. You are so, so in tune with God's spirit. 
And then on the back end, when they deconstructed Mormonism and left, we were like, hmm, yeah. so unfortunate for Jerry. Jerry just just lost the spirit and away he went. Mm-hmm. And Elder D. Todd Christofferson put both examples yes. in one conference. In one talk. talk. Yes. <laughs> that immediately came to mind. Thank you for bringing that up. The Amish. <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, what traditional TBM, faithful believing Mormon, is going to be able to point to a conference talk from six years ago and cite to it? I just want to know. You lazy learner, damn it. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's the the TBMs who are lazy learners. Yeah. Amen, brother. (laughs) Well... So understanding that aspect of the of the faith crisis, that it it's not necessarily bad because particularly if you're one of those high demand religions, <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of have to go through that. To... <laughs> I just want to stop, Dan. Will you put, will you put that back up, Maven? <laughs> Dan Hardy, look at that. Right. And by the way, Dan Hardy means this. He's not being funny. <laughs> right, because Catholicism isn't true. <laughs> All right, continue, Jonathan. <laughs> okay, so. I think another aspect of a faith crisis to realize is that it's very painful. It can seem like it's overwhelming, but it's not a final state of being. A faith crisis is a transitional state. And there are, I've kind of grouped the outcome of a faith crisis into two broad categories. The first will be reconciliation. And that's where new understanding comes to the troubled individual, which helps them to reconcile the conflicting evidence which gave rise to the crisis in the first place. So it could be, you know, they've, they've read a talk or watched a fair Mormon video, if we're talking about Mormonism, and they've, they've uh, come to an ex, they have an explanation that helps put their mind at ease. They've reconciled themselves to the things that used to cause that crisis, and they've they've returned to the relationship with their faith. Um, and I did that and, a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't to say that this only happens once. You know, this is this is something that can happen multiple times, as each of us experienced, no doubt. And then the other outcome of this transitional state of the faith crisis I've categorized as impeachment. And that's where the troubled individual comes to the conclusion that the conflicts which gave rise to the crisis in the first place are in fact legitimate and that they impeach the authenticity of the claims that their religion has made. And the question is, which of these outcomes is desired? Which one is the desired fix? Uh, It's important to acknowledge that you can't really tell which form of resolution is the desired form when you're experiencing it. So some people may say, wait, I thought this was supposed to be a trick to fix your faith crisis. Doesn't that mean it's a way to help me keep my faith? And you may think that that's the right way to approach a crisis of faith, but generally speaking, if your concern is the pursuit of truth, then you have to acknowledge that a strategy for resolving a faith crisis which is focused only on means to achieve reconciliation falls short. And you have to think that not so much about your own faith crisis, but what somebody else in a different faith would have once they start seeing the cracks in the foundation of their organization. And to do that, you have to have an outsider's view, and that's going to kind of be the next dimension of the um, the paper, is examining the outsider's view of a faith crisis. Any and comments? certainly one of the complicating factors here, Jonathan, is that if you are a committed member of a high-demand fundamentalist re- religion, you are already proceeding from the assumption that your religion is true in the first place. So how is it that you're going to find truth in something other than what your religious authorities teach? Yeah. 
not only that, but your religion in some cases have, have shaped your epistemology. They've shaped the way that you analyze truth. And that since they're the ones that have given you the tools to analyze truth, then you would first have to realize that their tool is faulty in order for you to learn some other way to analyze truth. And so in religions that use a spiritual confirmation, that spiritual confirmation is a way that they teach their members to identify truth. And they do it in a way where it trumps then the critical logical faculties that they would otherwise have, because they are told always return to the spiritual confirmation of their truth, which when you're in a believing space and someone in your own faith tells you that, it seems good. But then if you like listen to the Jehovah's Witnesses, leaders tell the people in their religion to do that, you're like, hold on a second, you don't want to do that, because then you're going to stay trapped in, you know, the religion where you can't have a birthday. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, Yu-Gi-Oh! Calm down. All right, so then, um, so now we're going to move kind of to the, um, the outsider's view. So, when thinking about your own religion, um, it's easy to see reconcili reconciliation and impeachment as good or bad. Reconciliation sounds like a good thing. You're helping someone return to a state of faithfulness. And impeachment sounds like a bad thing. You're casting off something in a negative way. But imagine that we're talking about somebody in a high demand, false fundamentalist religion who's discovering aspects of that deception. Reconciliation is no longer a good thing because it would drag them back into that false system of deceit. It's better termed placation and is hopefully just a temporary thing. Impeachment then is a good thing because it frees them from a false system of control and is more appropriately termed liberation. So there's just another way to look at that paradigm. You have to stop thinking about your own faith and think about just in general, if we're gonna have tools that pursue truth, they have to work no matter which faith that you're in, whether it's a false one or a true one. So any strategy that- mm -hmm. I just wanna stop you for a second. So I think this is an important point for the audience that you have to take the mindset of some other belief system that you that you assume on the front end isn't true and then mm -hmm. and then recognize that the reasons that we use in untrue religions to keep people believing that they're true to recognize that you wouldn't want that if you were in the church of scientology or if you were a jehovah's witness right like you wouldn't yeah. and so you start to wonder within your own system if those are really working guidelines to help you figure it out. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm preaching to the corner. Yeah, that's that's an important perspective to, to keep. It. Yeah, any, you know, any strategy to fix a faith crisis has to have the power to reconcile people to the truth while liberating them, no matter where they are. And you want to make sure it's not placating an individual to get them to accept a lie and it must not impeach the truth. So we're almost to the point where we want to look at that one weird trick. But first, we're going to take our outsider's view and kind of step even one step further back, because when you're thinking about yourself and how you would be in these systems of faith, it, it's a little bit different than if you even step out of yourself and say, what if somebody that I really loved, that I cared about, a son, daughter, mother, or someone, was trapped in the system of belief? And then you have to say, well, it's not so much that I need them to believe what I believe. I just want them to escape that system. And so in order to see that we just want people to be able to find truth without them necessarily having to believe what we already believe, then you have to use this even third person thing. And so I, I brought out this tool called the, uh, the Triangle of Dubious Religions. And uh, we've got a diagram here. It's, it's like three different religions. 
<laughs> yeah, you have the Church of Scientology, the J Dubs, and the Moonies. Now, Noticeably I didn't absent use are the Mormons because this isn't about. It's not even about any of these three. I just I happen to be Mormon, and I'm talking with a Mormon, so I want him to be able to look at this without triggering that defensiveness that talking about Mormonism would have. And so the the goal here is you're going to imagine that you're a member of some other religion. And that from that perspective, we're going to evaluate how you would counsel a loved one who had gotten involved with some different religion, which you know to be false from your own perspective. So if you're a Jehovah's Witness, pretend that you're a member of the Moonies and your son was recruited into Scientology. If you're a Scientologist, imagine that you were a J-Dub and your daughter was taken in by the Moonies. If your religion isn't listed here, just select one of these three and play make-believe for the rest of this exercise. So let's take a look at that triangle. Now, you can look at from one corner of this triangle of dubious religions to the other two and know for sure that those other two are false because each of these religions has mutually exclusive claims and worldview with the others. That is, if the J-dubs are true, then Scientology and the Moonies are false. If the Moonies are true, then the J-dubs and the Scientologists are bunk and so on. Now, with this in mind, you want to consider how you would feel about your loved one who is trapped in one of those other religions. And I say trapped because each of these religions are high-demand religious groups. They require a great deal from their followers. There are strong social and psychological aspects that amplify the intensity of a faith crisis. Each of the religions also strongly discourages their members from reading or trusting any material that's not published by their own official sources. And all of these powerful forces keep members from learning about the conflicting issues issues, asking questions, or expressing doubt, minimizing the chance of a crisis of faith. So it's kind of a trap, or is famously described as a prison of belief in a documentary about Scientology. Now, knowing this information, you would likely feel a great deal of compassion for your son or daughter and want them to be able to discover the nature of the deception which is keeping them bound in that false religion. You want them to have a crisis of faith, not because you want them to experience the trauma that goes along with that crisis, but you know that in order to escape that false system and to be free to find truth on their own, they have to go through that crisis of faith. And uh, I'll pause there in case uh, you guys have anything to interject amongst my monologuing. Somebody just made the comment that this sounds a lot like streeter epistemology. <laughs> well, I mean, to, to some extent, it's true. This is just kind of using metaphor to get to the root that we are trying to drill down to epistemology, which is how do you know something is true? How can you be confident that a claim is either false or true? Because what they've done with what we're going to learn are these wood tools. It's that they've subverted and manipulated the tools that you would otherwise have to seek for truth. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I think stepping outside of your own system is the greatest secret to helping somebody see this. And uh, anyway, I love it. All right. So the next thing, the next factor is one that a lot of people really resonated with, and that is rejecting what is wrong without necessarily knowing what is right. So since you're pretending to be in a false religion yourself, you really don't have to be concerned that your child necessarily has to learn about your pretended religion in order to escape their own religious prison. So if you're a Mormon pretending that you're a Scientologist whose kid has been taken in by the Moonies, like you want your kid to escape the Moonies, but you don't necessarily want them to join Scientology because as a, as a Mormon, you don't really want to, you know, them to do that. So you just have to understand that the goal here is to get somebody to be able to reject a false, deceptive, coercive system not necessarily that they have to join some other system. So, and that's really a good point there. And are you going to talk about Thomas Edison and the filaments? Yeah, that's the that's the next point about because it. This so, is the whole thing that the the Midnight Mormons, who I understand are close personal friends of yours, this is the thing yeah. that the Midnight Mormons were were chastising me for 
in that debate was that if what I'm saying is freeing people from the high demand fundamentalist religion of Mormonism, then it's somehow incumbent upon me to set up a separate high demand fundamentalist religion for those people that I have liberated to become enslaved to all over again. Yeah, I, that moment in that debate was highly memorable. That's that's one of the moments that really stands out to me. Not so much because uh, you may be surprised to hear that I agree with you. I actually think that was one of the victory points that the Mormons made, but not because of epistemology, not because of the, you know, having to know what's true. And I don't know if their question was really specifically about that, but uh, if you haven't seen that debate, definitely check out that moment. It's, it's a great um, kind of moment in that debate. Um, but going to the point that's made here, and you can take down the triangle probably, but, um, you know, when you're thinking about your loved one in this third religion that's not your own and both of them are false, the escape of your loved one from the deception of a false faith is not dependent on another faith being true. The lies, the cover-ups, conflicting doctrine, deceptive practices, and harmful effects of a false high-demand religion are the things which show that it's false, and your loved one can come to that knowledge without having to immediately adopt another faith. And another faith isn't required for them to see the falseness of it. You don't have to know the truth in order to reject a lie. And the example here is Thomas Edison. You know, he's trying to discover just the right filament as he's inventing the light bulb. The filament has to last a really long time, but not melt under its own heat. He tested thousands of different filaments. He knew that one that melted under its own heat or wouldn't last was the wrong filament. Even if he didn't know what the right one was, he was able to reject the wrong ones. You know, it's not a perfect metaphor, but it just gives you an example where you don't necessarily have to already know the truth to be able to call out a lie and, and not shape your life by it. And this is one of the things that, akin to that moment in the debate where we're frequently told by family members, you know, well, what do you believe in now? And the what do you believe in now question is kind of like an invitation to say, well, tell me what you believe in so I can show you how it's false or it's not perfect. Exactly. And, with, the, with the idea that if I can show you what your belief in is now is false, then somehow my belief is made truer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so and they hate it when we're like, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm not really here espousing anything true about what I believe. And part of that comes the humility of having shaped your life and identity around something that you discover to be false is you have a really hard time being as committed to some other organization in the future. So it's not so much that, you know, I'm not trying to tell other people to live by like me. I just want people to understand that the idea that you can discern falsehood, deception, manipulation is important because none of us want to shape our lives and our identities around things that are false. All right. So, so with that paradigm in mind now, we've, we've, we've considered the dubious triangle of religions. We we're thinking about ourselves and our loved ones in a false, um, both in false religions. We're not concerned about proving our religion true. We're just concerned about being able to help our loved one discover the deception and escape from this prison of, of false claims and beliefs. In doing so, we need to be very careful, though. We need to tread lightly because you could say, well, you know, as soon as a loved one comes to me and says that they're having a, a little bit of a faith crisis in their thing, we could say, oh, yeah, well, look at this book, look at this evidence. It's all faith. It's all false. It's all bunk. That can actually not achieve our goal of helping our loved one liberate it because there are things that um, are psychological. You know, they may not actually have already 
understood the the level of manipulation and deception that they're under they may still be standing with a great deal of confidence placed in that faith and are just discovering that the footing might not be sound a little bit they might still revere aspects of the faith and if you go out and just assertively claim that it's false chances are that your loved one is going to perceive that as an attack and each of these faiths have strong teachings about why and how members outside their religion will attack them for possessing the truth. Uh, it triggers a defensiveness, a persecution complex, and bashing the faith can simply recall those teachings to the minds of your loved one and give them, to re give them reason to believe that your persecution is enough to prove to them that it's true. See, the, everyone's going to persecute us and call us liars, and that proves that we're true. And so that, that alone can kind of push someone to, to disregard any doubts that they may have had. So the, the guidance here is to kind of tread lightly when you encounter someone who's having the first sliver of a crisis of faith. Is that something that you guys have experienced or understand? You, well, you're speaking to the idea, right? There's the backfire effect. Yeah. That unless you meet a certain threshold in their mind, unless you cross that threshold where they're like, damn. I get it now that my church isn't true. Mm -hmm. They are much more likely to believe and hence, you know, confirmation bias, belief persistence. Uh, they've been practicing yeah. for years, the illusory truth effect. Yeah. Um, and, and to that effect, yeah, there's a great article by the oatmeal called, uh, it's something like, you're not going to believe what I have to tell you. And just kind of even sorry, outside Jonathan the paradigm. Schreeder. Yes. Oatmeal is writing articles now. I haven't heard of this. Oatmeal is something. <laughs> Oatmeal, they're a comic artist, and they have dipped their toe into some of these kind of social psychological phenomenon. And uh, I can, um, I think I sent Bill a link to this uh, after this episode. If you check out the Oatmeal comic about you're not going to believe what I have to tell you, it's a great exposition of the nature of the backfire effect and why it's helpful to understand it if you are engaging with loved ones in discussions about you know sincerely held beliefs that people identify with very strongly, because you're you're trying to tiptoe around those defensive mechanisms which can actually serve to do the opposite of what you're trying to do which is trying to, you know, increase understanding and expand perspective and get people to see things from a different way. Mm. And I think also understanding that this also affects you. You know, there even after you leave Mormonism, there are going to be things that you come to identify very powerfully with and that you are then hesitant to look at other perspectives with. And so this isn't something that's simply condemning Mormonism and religion. It's something that I think we all have to wrestle with in many different parts of our life. Okay, so understanding all of that now, I think... Uh, so we kind of, you know, we're in this third religion, we're thinking about our loved one in yet another religion that is coming to us. We want to think about what's, what such a person in a false faith is likely to encounter when they turn to leaders of that faith with their questions and doubt. And so since we're playing make-believe, let's suggest that instead of just confronting your loved one with, you know, the, the indisputable facts about the falsehood of the religion, suggest that they go and ask the leaders of the faith their questions, and then come back to you and tell them, tell you what, what they said. Um, now, your son or daughter earnestly and sincerely does this. They're directed to individuals in the organization that they are told are familiar with all the troubling history, and they have explanations that can help clarify and resolve those concerns. Your child does this, and for each point of conflicting history and doctrine that is raised, an explanation is provided, and many of the explanations sound plausible. Uh, others maybe require a little bit more faith and patience uh, rather than logical understanding, but the purpose of every explanation is reconciliation to the faith. 
However, since we're assuming that all of these faiths are false, as an outsider's perspective, we can see that they are really just forms of placation. Now, each of these explanations and rationalizations can be considered as a different tool used to resolve any doubt by placation. And so we're calling them ways of overcoming doubt, or wood tools, W-O-O-D, ways of overcoming doubt. Um, and the you know, apologists of these- It wasn't until last <laughs> night when I was re-re-re-reading your article that I realized that these are acronyms. Oh, really? Well, I tried to help. make them acronyms with that meant something for what Wait they were second. anyway. Hold it, hold it. You created this whole idea. Yeah. Of wood tools, steel tools, and the associated acronyms. Yeah. You are brilliant. Steel was harder. I, I, high pro, I flattery will get you everywhere. So especially coming from RFM. Wait till anyway, so let's. Steel, folks. There'll be a test on this <laughs> afterward. Okay. So now so what's wood stand for? Ways of overcoming doubt. Okay. Overcoming is one word. Doubt your yes. doubts. Ways of overcoming doubt. Doubt your doubts. <laughs> yeah, that is good. Thank you, brother. Uh, All right. So can I, can I start with the first one? Okay. So um, let me get there first because I want to make sure. That... Break. That's number one. Okay, that's tool. that's the only one we need, really. That is a good one. That's a wood tool, isn't it? It's a wood tool. No. Okay, yeah, but go ahead. We one. haven't quite gotten oh, there, have we, Jonathan? No, that, that's okay, because we're just Please about there. Please explain what um, the wood tool is, and then we will play the video clip again. Exactly okay, so I think it's important to realize that the you know we're not thinking about these explanations in the context of our own faith. We're thinking about it as somebody in a different faith. So if you right. hear the leaders of Scientology tell their members to doubt their doubts, you're going to be like, yeah, clearly that's a cult. They, they don't want their members to see anything. But then if you show up at a general conference and you hear your own leader say doubt their doubts, then if you're doubt like, your oh, doubts. yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's okay. That's good. Yeah. Well, you have to realize there's a little inconsistency there between how you, how you have it because you've already shown that that thing is going to keep someone trapped in a false paradigm. So ways of overcoming doubt, remember, a way of overcoming doubt in and of itself isn't necessarily good because if you're overcoming doubt in something that is false, no bueno. And That's so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So German could be all bad. Okay, so so these the way wood tools then are answers to questions which would keep somebody in a false faith bound to that deception. And so we've got a list provided examples of uh, wood tools. Uh, if, it, and you guys have access to the list. List if you want to read some of them. That's this is the only place where I included Mormon things, but I didn't call them Mormon because most I know, it's people like in the other first one and the last one, recency and primacy or whatever it was. I noticed those that made me uncomfortable when I was reading it because it sounded like you were talking about Mormonism unless these other high demand fundamentalist religions use exactly the same thing. Like it's not important for your salvation. Yeah, oh, they of, do. I, do they I've really? heard other to my salvation. I've heard other. I think it was J dubs in particular where people oh, are like, man. you know, this is not important for what's actually going to get you in good with Jehovah. And, and so, that that, you us. know, yeah, I think they did. You just, just like just we stole a, stuff from Scientology. I got to look it up here because I just put a picture on. It was on Exmormon Reddit, and it was uh, a thing from Seminary. Let me um, let me pull it up here really quick. If my computer will cooperate, you know, I can't me. tell you how many times I've brought up things at church, and someone has told me uh, it's not pertinent to my salvation. And after a while, I finally just started asking them, "How do you know?" 
Yes, this is that, me that, covering that, for Bill Realist. He's trying to find. Sorry, you're story. trying to buy no, me okay. a second, and because this we're doing I, a live stream, this is in stream, my job description. Computer's slow. This is part of the job, because you look up things, you find great things to show to the audience, and, and I you just buy me try time. and you know do stuff while you're doing yep. it. So we don't here have it is. Dead so air. this is the statement in seminary that the kids just got taught. Um, me, oh yeah, currently? it is. This is yep. It, this is oh, just up on that board. This is a image. Uh, from a seminary class, somebody took a picture while the class was going on. Uh, it says, it is important to remember that historical details do not carry the saving power of covenant ordinances, covenants and ordinances and doctrine. To be distracted by less significant details at the expense of missing the unfolding miracle of the restoration is like spending time analyzing a gift box and ignoring the wonder of the gift inside. Now, again, that's a wood tool because a statement similar to that could be said in any one of those false religions. And all it does is mm -hmm. keep the person pacified so that they stay in the Moonies, stay in Scientology, stay in the Jehovah Witnesses. I was watching Entertainment Tonight just the other night, and I heard Tom Cruise say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really, but he could. You can certainly see where it is. I think it was it, John Travolta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's right. the alley hasn't said that recently. Yeah, well, they don't have necessarily the specific words of covenants, ordinances, and doctrine. But to say that the history doesn't matter and that if you focus on the historical details that counter our truth claims, mm -hmm. yes. you're going to miss out on the beauty of our religion is something that everybody could say. Yeah. And, and we've gotten, since this article was released, we've gotten other brilliant examples. I think we have the other one, which is that there are primary questions and there are secondary questions and all the history all that other stuff those are like secondary questions we need to just focus on the primary first level questions and it's just a way of segmenting out the contradictory things so that people don't think about it but it's Corbridge just another maneuver. example of yeah that's the corbage maneuver exactly so By other way, examples they have that goes back even mm -hmm. further and i can't uh it's not leonard errington uh maybe you can tell me the historian who coined the phrase i don't have a testimony of church history Oh, yeah. I, and that one I got hit with in my own faith journey as well. It was Arrington. And it's the same. Kick. He wrote the, um, oh, man. Sorry. No. I have a testimony. Bill Rill's doing some deep level research right now. Sorry, well, while he's doing that, see. while he's doing that, let's list some other examples. So okay. we weren't there at the time, so we can't judge the actions of our founders or early leaders. We can't judge behavior in the past by today's standards. Things which seem wrong today weren't so bad back then. They were very the commonplace. Is a foreign country. They do things yes. differently there. Yeah. Um, there's there's another one that is if God commands something, then it is right, even if it would otherwise be considered wrong. That's the happiness letter. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh. We will find answers to your troubling questions in the afterlife. Until then, we must simply have faith. That was Elder Oaks about marriages and plurality yeah. of wives in the afterlife, which he said in general we will conference. Find, yeah. Uh, let's see. That is a mystery which God uses to test our faith. Uh, you should be more concerned about doing what we tell you is right than asking questions which tear down faith. That's another example of a wood tool. Our leader was only speaking it's as a man when he said that. Leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Bing. It's a lot of wood tools in my soundboard. <laughs> it, it really is. But it, it's funny because when you see these used in other religions, you're like, oh, yeah, that's clearly manipulation, deception. And uh, But then when you see it in your own, it's harder to identify. 
And a lot of it is because, like, you know, I remember feeling just a great deal of trust in these men, that they were just really good men. They would not lie. They would not manipulate. And, and just when you then hear the same concepts coming out of people who you don't trust automatically, it, it erodes some of their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Our leader was only speaking as a man when he said that troubling or incorrect thing. You can trust what he says when he's speaking as our leader. But we only get to determine after the fact which, which one it was. You cannot trust anything that's not published by our own official sources. Your personal failure to keep our rules has led you to doubt. Start focusing on fixing yourself rather than tearing down our faith. Let's see, what's another example? The answer to some questions are too precious or sacred to be given at this time. Oh um, if you if you pray harder and read more of our official publications, then you will understand. Your doubts are proof that you haven't studied enough. Study more. Uh, it's okay to have these questions. Yes, it's okay to have these questions, but you should never share them with anyone else, just your leaders in private. Uh, you should trust the judgment of your leaders. Some of this opposition even comes from church members. Some who use personal reasoning or wisdom to resist prophetic direction give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies, the loyal opposition. However appropriate for a democracy, there's no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom, where questions are honored, but opposition is not. Wood tool. Is there something about when you become a general authority, automatically you start saying the word body in kind of a creepy way? Everything you sound, say sounds creepy. Once the spell is broken and you hear these guys, they speak with a assumed authority that once you, the magic of that assumed authority disappears, then you just like, the question comes, why would I trust you over somebody else who I, you know, who I see I share values with in my life? And it, it's it's a difficult it, you, if you really want to hear the magic broken, and I've done this in private, I, I've wanted to do an episode on it, but there is AI software now which will isolate a voice and remove echo and reverb. And you can go to general, you can get a general conference recording that has that God reverb and eliminate it. And it's just a guy talking and they just sound like frail old men. But it's that reverb that just like, it's this magical thing in your head is like the, the I call it the God reverb. Uh, we should do that sometime because it's really fun. I love that. It, okay, and, so uh, I noticed this time with Elder Oaks, just to make this passing observation, how flagrant he is in saying your personal wisdom, wisdom mm. must be subjugated to whatever the leaders of the church say to resist right. prophetic direction. They use their personal wisdom to resist prophetic direction. Talk about outsourcing your own yeah. autonomy. Yeah, and it's it's what the the weaving into that is an accusation of pridefulness. You know, if if you trust your own wisdom, then you are full of pride. You think you're better than these you know brethren who are humble servants of us all. And and so you know a lot of it is tied into you know recrimination of the doubter. You know that they're not good people. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They're you know deceptive and cunning. Uh, let's see, we have a few more. I think this is one of the most powerful ones that you'll find almost in every group that is one of these high-demand controlling groups. Don't listen to ex-members of our faith. They are evil. Um, well, if you wanted to then, find out about Christianity, would you go to Peter or Judas after the fact and before the hanging? Would you go well, to the Pharisees? <laughs> would you go to the Pharisees or would you go to, to, to Jesus for crying out loud? I was told Who's this by give a you pastor. The straight scoop? 
I was told this by a pastor once. If you're buying a Chevy, would you go to the Ford dealership and ask them about our cars? And it's it creates an idea that you're like, no, of course they're going to speak evil about it. But would I go to a scientist? Would I go to a general expert on vehicles generally? Like there are ways in which you can frame the question. The, the question's framed in a way to trick somebody into thinking yeah. a certain way, right? Right, because the flip side of that, which is unstated is, no, you're going to go to a Ford dealership because, of course, they're not going to speak evil oh. of Fords. No. But the other side of it is they're not going to speak any evil of Fords. They're only going to tell you the good stuff about yeah. uh, Fords, whether it's are. true or not. By the way, I drive right. a Ford, just so you know. That's where my allegiance <laughs> lies. And, and John, well, I just want to really mm -hmm. quick. I just want to say, I know you're probably bothered by the fact that I'm throwing in some of these Mormon wood tools sound bites because you no, 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 I understand separate. But but by throwing them in, folks are going like, "Yep, wood tool, wood tool, yeah, wood tool." And once you again, once you hear it, you see it, you understand it, it will help you the rest of your life to spot being manipulated. Right, and once again, the key of that wood tool, as I understand it, Jonathan, is that this is a tool that can be used in any religion in order to justify its own teachings. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically just, it's, a, it's they are thought terminating cliches. They are means of deception. They're ways to distract you from discovering truth or going down a Overcome pathway that may, yeah, you know, it falls and, under all that category. And part of the brilliance of your, your paper is that it's, so easy for us to see this in other religions that yeah. we don't believe but when it comes to our own we have this massive blind spot and i think that it's great that the way you're trying to help someone see their own blind spot by using their ability to see these things in other churches yeah, yeah. and that brings up another point which is that it's it's i think it's essential it's really important for people to branch out and look at these other faiths, look at the things that the Scientologists and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Moonies have imposed upon their members. You know, you'll find former members of each of those groups who have podcasts, who have websites that will show you how the deception, the trick works in those groups. And once you see that, it it, it helps hone your detector for that type of manipulation in your own life. But it, it then it adds more to the power of, no, 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 you know, this really is a deception and I, I need to see it for what it is. Um, because, the, you know, I remember even in the midst of my own faith crisis, just uh, laying, you know, lying awake at night, wondering, am I being deceived by Satan? You know, is this? Are these these conclusions that I'm I'm discovering? Are they wrong? Are they false? And then I'm, I started very early on looking at J Dubs and Scientologists and trying to understand how their members get caught in those systems of belief. Because if my own church was using those same mechanisms, then it's a big red flag that it may be a similar thing. And and I just realized that no, you know, if if what I'm learning about Joseph Smith is true, and I'm you know not, the church isn't you know Joseph Smith did this polygamy thing and there's this incontrovertible contradictory evidence of of what the church was and what it's now claiming that, that it's not true and if and on the flip side of that if it was true it would mean that god was okay with all this stuff and that it was a, a kind of a moral contradiction in my mind that i couldn't reconcile on a related issue i remember learning so much from my study of mormon apologetics and defending the faith i learned so much about uh bad apologetics about bad logic about tricks that could be used in order to spin the truth or deceive people because of course that's what's happening in the anti-mormon literature 
and they found lots of examples of it and wrote up, you know, all these different pieces, some of which got published, most of which did not, thankfully. But I was able to spot it. I could see what they were talking about and I could see the tricks mm -hmm. that they were pulling. And then after a while, I started seeing that a lot of the Mormon apologists mm -hmm. were using the same tricks. Yeah. <clears throat> By the way, John, well, we left you mm -hmm. in your hypothetical. We left yes. you at talking to your child who's now a member right. of a high demand fundamentalist religion. And they came forward with just a sliver. Maybe they have a doubt. And you said, go talk to your leaders and ask them the questions and see what they have to tell you. Right. And, and the key there is not just say, uh, just don't talk to me, go talk to your leaders. It's more like, well, you have these questions. We should at least understand what the members of your, what the members of the faith would have to say for these things. So keeping right. the root, the, the, the anchor point is your relationship with your loved one. If they then go and fair. nobody could right. object to that. So what do you do? Right. We're not telling them go, to go that. So the kid goes, talks to the leaders of their church, come back. At, do they come back to you with their answers? Do you have a further discussion? Where does this hypothetical? No, I think, go yeah, I think, I think you do. And, and this is where it's really helpful to explore then some of the wood tools that are being used in other faiths. And, and, and I think a discussion then of, okay, well, that's what they told you. Now, um, if we find similar answers in some of these other false faiths, what does that mean? And, you know, we all sit on our chairs and, and assume that conversations are going to go a particular way, and they're not. And a lot of this thought experiment is really just to get the believer who's reading this article to understand that those answers um, don't have the power they might think that they do. And it's not necessarily that this is going to be a, a, a fake conversation you're going to have with someone, because we're like two metaphors removed from what's actually in reality. So I wouldn't get too bogged down on that. It's more just to lay out this concept of the wood pool, the wood tool. Now, there's another dimension of this that I wanted. To, I, I brought in another metaphor to try to hammer this point home. So wood tool answers don't have the power to free someone from a false religion, then they shouldn't be relied by anyone who is sincerely seeking after truth, no matter what religion that they're in. This is a critical point, and it's necessary to understand in order for what we're going to see is the one weird trick to work. To clarify the point, we're going to use another example. So imagine that we've developed a test which can be applied to a patient when there is suspicion of cancer. Now, we're a researcher, and we want to find out how good the test is at detecting cancer. So we gather 100 patients, and and we know all of these patients have cancer because they've had x-rays, they've had pathology. We know that they have cancer, but we're using them to see how good this blood test is. So we run the blood test. We know they all have cancer, but when the test comes back, the tests are all negative. The, the test says they don't have cancer. So now it sounds like we've got a COVID test. <laughs> You're going to get demonetized if you start bringing that up. Okay, so oh. so now let's consider let's consider that you're the researcher. Now your child or a loved one, your mom, has uh, you know a suspected of cancer, and you're like, well, I've got this test I can use, and you use it on her, and it and it comes back negative. Do you trust that? Because what we've proven is that this test has a has has a false negative dimension to it that renders it useless. Yeah. in the detection of cancer because it wouldn't detect cancer in known cancer cases so that test these answers if they won't detect badness in in a false deceptive religion then you wouldn't want to use it on your own religion because it has no power to to detect badness and so that's kind of another way of seeing why these wood tools can't be relied on since we've demonstrated that that they may be used to keep someone trapped in a false system of control
Uh, okay. By the way, Mr. Streeter, I think that's a brilliant metaphor. Oh, well, thank you. I happen to be a radiologist, so I get confronted with this question all the time. <clears throat> okay, so... percent uh, accuracy. Yeah. Yeah, that's not, that's not good enough accuracy for but any these test. these wood tools that's, that you have identified are 100% absolutely not able to identify a problem with the religion of the person who's using them. Yeah. And again, this, this doesn't mean, like, if you're an apologist and you read this article, then what you should say is, okay, well, we really need to change the types of answers that we give. Because if we give an answer that would keep someone trapped in Scientology, it's probably not a legitimate answer and people are going to see that. And so right. you want to change. And I think we are seeing a shift in the way that the church defends itself. Um, and I, I, I think to some extent that that can be seen as a good thing. Um, but I, I, having covered those dimensions of the wood tools, we're now ready to move on to, well, if we can't use those answers, are there good answers? What are the tools that we would want to equip our loved one with? So if a wood tool simply quells doubt, then it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely not something you want to rely on. If it instructs your child to silence their concerns or from discussions with others, to focus on daily duties that the group has described, to wait for answers in the afterlife, if it makes unreasonable allowances for human imperfection or to spurn logic and rationality, then that wood tool is complicit in keeping your loved one trapped in a system of controlling deception and lies. The thing about wood tools is that they don't last, because the problems that the seeker discovered have not gone away, but had simply been covered or pushed away. They will return to the mind that is sincerely searching for truth. And that's because the goal of those strategies is misplaced from the beginning. Overcoming doubt is not a worthy goal in and of itself. It, it presupposes that doubts are wrong. Overcoming doubt in a false religion is a bad thing. The real goal for those who are starting to ask such questions is seeking truth. And answers to those questions and ways of dealing with a seeking heart should simply have truth as the goal, wherever that may lead. It should not be overcoming doubt as the goal. Now, the seekers should have unconstrained freedom to educate themselves from any and every source that they find. The seekers should be empowered to use logic and reason in an erudite manner and let those conclusions stand for what they are, and the seekers should be free to assimilate that knowledge and reason and, if necessary, liberate themselves from deception and error. And this is our next an acronym, which is Seeking Truth by Education, Erudition, and, if needs be, Liberation are STEEL tools. S-T-E-E-L, which can be relied on no matter which faith one is found in. They will last. They can be applied without reservation or restriction to any questions that arise. And this is where we get to what are the examples of steel tools that are in this category? Well, they're answers which could empower someone to discover the deception of a false religion and free themselves from it. So examples include, look at any and all information you can find from both official and unofficial sources. Talk to anyone about your questions and evaluate all answers. Find out what other people who have had the same questions say, both current and former members. Trust your own moral compass for what is right and wrong as you go on this journey. Allow yourself to follow your conclusion, even if it means rejecting something that you previously thought was true. By the now, way, I notice, think that is one ahead. of the hardest things. Hardest things to... Sorry. We're taking a little Yugi break. No, no, no. I, I'm getting notifications here. Why is it hard? What are, you, what, are, what are you thinking? Well, I think that's the critical point that is the toughest to do is to put yourself in a position where you can allow for the possibility that yeah. your religious beliefs are not true or not correct. In, in fact, you even hear people say it's the moment the thought entered their head for the first time 
What if it's not true? And the very next moment, the dominoes just fell. Yeah. Once you allow, once you give yourself the real legitimate permission to consider the possibility that it's false. And some of that is because all of these wood tools are just examples of mental acrobatics of just like this whole structure of assumptions and claims that you kind of have to bend your mind to accept because you're not willing to accept the one thing that allows them to all fall and for you to just reconcile yourself to reality. And that is the possibility that the claims of the organization are false from the beginning or that the foundational claims are false. For, you know, for Mormons, a lot of that is that Joseph Smith's claims to be a representative of God, the claims of the origin of the Book of Mormon, of his priesthood power and the whole foundation of the church, once you entertain sincerely the possibility that it might be true, you understand that that one explanation explains everything else with the least amount of caveat. And so none of those mental gymnastics are necessary. And, and it's, you know, it's just that the power, the forces keeping you from giving yourself permission to make that consideration are so strong. That's why it's, it's hard. Yeah. But channeling Brian Hales here for a second, Jonathan, where did all yes. the words for the Book of Mormon come from? I, I don't know if, it, you know, if, if no one has ever written the Book of Mormon before, then we have to assume it's d divine. Right. Absolutely. Where did the words come if you from? <laughs> where did the words for Lord of the Rings well, come from? Yeah. Jonathan Streeter. I don't know. I mean, it's the the thing is like all of those explanations that you'll hear from people like Brian Hales, they assume that it's kind of like the quantity of arguments that you can bring up. You put okay, these are the arguments and rationalizations we can put on one side of the scale. These are the criticisms on the other side of the scale, and that measures up. It it, it removes the consideration that the nature of the criticism or the contradiction can be really really powerful. That's where things like anachronisms, you can have, you know, one an anachronism, you know, you find one computer in a story about Abraham Lincoln and you know that it's not a real history because that one anachronism falsifies the assumption that this is a real depiction of history. And so when people find either anachronisms in the you know, the story, the narrative, what they're describing in the words of the Book of Mormon, that's one level of way of disproving it. But when you find textual dependencies that completely betray the chronology of it, um, that's kind of another type of anachronism that is way harder for them to argue around. So they'll come up with all sorts of things, but that one thing can be so powerful in disproving it doesn't matter how many other rationalizations are there. But, you know, that's where this journey will lead you on once you start to distinguish between wood tools and steel tools is you'll start to develop a vocabulary and an understanding about the nature of these types of um, logical fallacies and things like that. Are you making room for both a tight and loose translation in that answer? <laughs> well, I mean, that's where the church has had to adapt to the nature of these religions. So you say, well, okay, well, well, maybe it's a metaphor, or maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't exactly the same way. And, you know, allowance people will accept allowance. that. Yeah, they'll accept that to an extent. By um, the way, about Brian Hales, I wanted to say this to him at one point. Maybe he'll watch this. Maybe he's watching it now. How exciting. But not likely. I've listened to him on podcasts go on about his theories about the Book of Mormon because one of his latest things that he's doing is he's left polygamy behind and he's focusing on Book of Mormon translation. And his main argument is to go after the other secular or naturalistic explanations for the Book of Mormon, try to dismantle them or disprove them with the idea yeah. that if the only man left standing is the divine explanation, then that wins, right? And I've yeah. heard him go on like for two hours, two plus hours about this. Obviously, he knows his subject. He's able to go on quite fluently in the interviews. And then 
During the course of the interview, he's always repeating his refrain, where did the words come from? Where did the words come from? And I have thought more than once, well, Brian, if you took this two-hour interview and you transcribed <laughs> it, you'd have probably the Book of Alma right there. That's a good point. <laughs> Especially words, when... His explanation and his whole thing about where did the words come from, he's using words to make his argument. Just write them yeah. down or have somebody else write them down. And you're halfway to dictating the Book of Mormon. Yeah. You know, as soon as Bushman said that we need to see Joseph's endeavors more as um, uh, fake writings or pseudepigrapha, yeah. then th I, to me, that was like the game was over at that point because they're, they're basically saying he could have made it up. And since some of the books in the Bible are pseudepigrapha and we consider them scripture, then it's just the same. And the problem is like we already have ways to refute that where we have Chris Nemelka has published the uh, sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. That also is pseudepigrapha. So if we're going to say, well, we need to allow pseudepigrapha, then you know, on what basis then would we refute the claims of Chris Nemelka? Well, yeah, there it is right there. Because it's not That's inspired. pseudepigrapha. It's, it's not scripture. inspired pseudepigrapha, Jonathan. Look at this. That's this guy, oh no, it is inspired. Holy crap. And, hey, RFM, <laughs> where did the words come from? Exactly. Where did the words I'm come saying holy from? crap for people listening on audio. Bill Real is taking this huge holy. I'm not done a, yet. There's still three more chapters to go. Book with, that's the sealed portion. <laughs> this is Dude. all of Mahanri Moriankamer's words about yes. the last days. And the thing is, Namelka, for, you know, it's huge. You you don't want to say anything bad about Namelka because he will he will sue you or whatever. But you know, in the beginning of this book, prolific. it says like, yeah, in the beginning of the book, it says you know people who doubt this are haters and they don't want the truth. And so if somebody doubts it, then that's proof that they're bad and wrong. And so he like included the same sort of logical mind traps in that that you'll find in other you know fake religions that use those mind traps to keep people believing things. Bill, how many take a moment just to say that this is these are massive pages double columned how many pages in that book okay let's say something here first off I'm the sealed at, portion at where all these words came from 655 no, pages yep. now, hold on 655 pages the sealed portion was supposed to be half to two-thirds of the book of mormon out of the last half or third that was left 116 pages of lehi's manuscript is gone we don't have it so this book is significantly larger than the print of the Book of Mormon as we have it today. Brian Hales, where did these words come from? And like, not only that, but when the sealed portion, it actually draws upon gaps and holes in the scripture of the Book of Mormon and fills them in a way that is actually scripturally imaginative, you know, because it, it, it takes the idea that if, if there is a heavenly mother and polygamy was real, there are multiple heavenly mothers, which means that there are strains of humanity that may derive from one heavenly mother versus another. And so you may have a relationship with one heavenly mother that is different from my relationship with heavenly mother, which is a different polygamous wife of God. And, and so in the visions that are described in the sealed portion, they go and they explore the implications of this. And so it, it's not just like, you know, yeah, I was struggling, I was, you know, Mountain, walking through the mountains and, you know, God said, make a steel bow. It's not like troglodyte stuff like that. It, it actually explores some theological concepts. Well, all Real I know question. is that my heavenly mother can beat up your heavenly mother, Jonathan. <laughs> and your, your heavenly mother wears army boots. My heavenly mother would make far better funeral potatoes than yours. Whoa. Is this not <laughs> throwing down?
Isn't oh, yeah, that's the thing is, it's pseudepigrapha, exactly. Your bush, so if pseudepigrapha, like, it's right, so there's gotta be two inches thick there. This guy is the a explanation, true believer, right? He's a true believer, at least in his no, no, no. Of, this guy's not, no. is this is all just made up to be well, he, there's video out there of him saying that he created the sealed portion as a hoax. He wanted to model it after the same deception that Joseph Smith had to prove people to people that they can be deceived. But he he himself is a highly charismatic man. He's entered the realm of politics. He's still out there. He still has a following. And um, there are things that he is claiming in his live streams, which I've watched a few of them, which are scarily reminiscent of the Heaven's Gate group. And so oh, no. I, I would not be surprised if there are headlines in the future. Just because really? of what you said earlier, the views and perspectives of Jonathan Streeter do not represent those of Mormon Discussion Incorporated, Bill Real, or Radio Free Mormon. <laughs> they don't even represent my views. I heard someone else say that. <laughs> so this book may be sort of um, a written version of the Patterson-Gimlin film. Is that what you're saying? I don't know that film. <laughs> Look, Bill knows. Look at that. Bill got Look it. The Sasquatch video. Bill got it. <laughs> Only because of Dear Jesus. Uh, oh, okay, 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 okay. The Sasquatch no? video. All right. So, so to people who are wondering, you can actually find that book uh, online. They actually have it being read, like a Look full YouTube video is, where you can just look at him. He's beaming. He's beaming. Come yes, to my he arms, is. My beamish boy. <laughs> <laughs> You're just happy somebody got a reference. I'm you so didn't have happy. to sit there going, anyone? Yeah, anyone? I've been, I've been waiting for this moment for two and a half years. <laughs> okay, so returning to our list of steel tools, you will note that the list is not as long because there are fewer mental acrobatics that have to be employed. The seeker mm -hmm. is simply advised to learn as much as possible from anywhere and everywhere and use their own mind and rationality and conscience to follow where the truth leads. That's now, it dangerous. should also be observed... Shouldn't we actually be well, listening to people who know more than we do and can see further and are more in touch with God and the Holy Ghost? Wouldn't that be a safer course, Mr. Streeter, if that is your real name? By its, that yeah. was a wood tool. That works in all of them. Except that well, my leaders are really in touch with God. The others are tool. frauds. Another wood tool. That's but the true, true Scotsman. My leaders really are in touch with God. Wood tool. Okay. But let's just say, and, let's say my leaders really are. Let's say reality is. My leaders are in touch with God and they're not. How yes. is that a wood tool? Isn't that truth? Isn't that reality? Well, it we may be the be case. Well, then you should, you know, the, the thing is like when you analyze history, you say, okay, so if, if this man really is the spokesperson for God and he's said already that there are universal truths which are timeless that don't change, then when you go back in time and find contradictions to that assertion, then that is a red flag that something is up. And so then you just have to understand that that, 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 that foundational assumption, that first assumption that you maybe didn't question, now there may be a reason to question it. And so it's... it's ongoing it, restoration. Yeah. Of course, they could say, well, that's Satan leading you by a smooth silken thread steadily down the path. But okay, so we're almost to the end of our thing. So now, um, oh, well, so that. another point about this is that um, 
this whole process and the liberation that may come from applying steel tools to your particular faith paradigm doesn't mean that you have to leave your religion. You can be liberated from the false beliefs of a false religion and still hold fast to those aspects which uplift and are positive. You can have a more balanced and realistic view of the faith, appreciating its rich and colored history and your own heritage among its members while rejecting the toxic features. Now, many people liberated in such a manner work to improve those aspects of the faith which they find are, you know, hurtful or part of the, the deception and control, they may be seen as a significant force which drives these institutions to evolve and progress. But it should be noted that some particularly high demand religions would reject and expel people who attempt to do this. So it's not necessarily an option that everyone has available to them. Is that something that you guys see? I mean, I, I kind of see Bill's own trajectory a little bit there. Well, yes, absolutely. And by the way, David Nolan, the director and writer of The Good Shepherds, that musical that came out last year, I think mm -hmm. now would be a good time to announce that apparently, it's not actually apparently, it is true that he has been scheduled for his court of dishonor this coming Sunday, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. So he has received his letter, and uh, I don't know if he's going to attend but it is scheduled for this coming Sunday, I believe it is. It's this weekend, in other words. I think it's Sunday. Mm -hmm. And he is headed, apparently, for the chopping block because I think that the writing's on the wall, meaning, meaning, tikalu parsing. And that translates to, you're done, David. You're not going to be a member of this church anymore. Whether you show up, whether you don't show up, it's a fait accompli. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but... We've all learned, again, there is the rhetoric, for instance, Elder Holland in the uh, British Broadcasting Channel interview that he did where he said, like, you know, we don't, we don't require people to believe literally in the Book of Mormon. There's rhetoric out there that you're allowed to have this nuanced belief and truth matters and you're allowed to ask questions. But it seems like the moment you push just a little bit, um, the exit is shown to you pretty quick. Yeah, and this is the part that's interesting to me. It's not just a matter of church leaders saying, you don't get to ask any questions. You need to just sit down and shut up and mm -hmm. do what we tell you to do, okay? Because that's what they really believe. The fact is, is that they recognize that that is not a message that's going to go over well with non-members. I think most of the members get it. But non-members, they're not going to really cotton to that very much. And so because yeah. they know that that's not a good message for the outsiders. They modify their message for the outsiders and they talk about it like it's just a free speech environment in the LDS church. <laughs> when those inside of it know that's not, not the case. No. Yeah. But I'm I'm hoping though that what we're seeing is an evolution in the culture of the church. Uh, I think you and I grew up in a church that was very much concrete and uh reinforcing one single paradigm of belief, but I'm I I believe that statements like what you're referring to in Holland have a way of trickling down to reshape and soften the culture of the church and I I think we're moving in that direction and and so to me that's why I've been able to explore and see my own family members evolve on positions which previously would never have been held by them. And when a leader says something like that, it, it opens up breathing room for people to have a little bit more diversity of thought and opinion. And we're even seeing the church tolerate 
um, like public figures, I think if you follow, because I, I followed Sisters in Zion for a while, and they remain members in good standing, even though they've had some sharp criticisms of aspects of the church. And so there are other examples of public figures that are given some leeway and we might, coming from our background of a very rigid notion of the church, see something nefarious at play, but it could also be interpreted as the church understanding that it does need to loosen up on requirements of belief in order to maintain membership. And I, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that that may be what it's reshaping itself to be. And you even saw well, this just last week. Mike Ash, again, I don't, he put it on his Facebook page. I don't think it's a big deal in saying this. Mike Ash posted that he got a big tattoo. And Mike Ash is an apologist with Fair Mormon. And tattoos in the 1980s and the yeah. 90s would have been an absolute no-no in Mormonism. And now because of – I can't forget the, the sister's name that came into the church that has the tattoos. Yeah, the tattooed Mormon. Yeah. But, but she's essentially all by herself made this new headway in Mormonism where now tattoos are no big deal. Well, it's like Elder Holland said. You know, the world goes here and then we go here. And the world goes here, and then we true go here. True and living church, the only true and living church with which the Lord is well pleased. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there are there may be realms in which that motion is allowed, and other realms of the faith in which that flexibility is not allowed. Right. But true. I want to make sure that we close this out because we're getting to the end. And I want to close uh, that it out way, too, if you but guys... I want to make this point first. The thing yes. is that um, I don't know. You know, I know what you're saying about Elder Holland or whoever saying certain things that that can loosen things up a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the general membership, I think the problem is, is that using David Nolan as an example, yeah, he gets that message. He does a musical which criticizes the church's hoarding of billions and billions of dollars, right? And apparently his stake president, which I think is the Wellsville stake, is that is that a place up there in Cache Valley, Bill? Do you know? I don't know. Okay, I think it's the Wellsville stake, the stake president there. He didn't get the memo. From Elder Holland. Yeah. Or maybe well, he got a secret memo that he was told to destroy. We don't know because so much is done in secrecy in this church. All we know is that he is proceeding against David Nolan for something that I think a member could arguably say, well, the leaders are saying these, this kind of thing, and I'm not doing anything that's objectionable based upon this new messaging that the church is giving to the world. So why yeah. am I being held to account and being excommunicated for doing it by my local leaders? What's your answer to that, Mr. Streeter? Well, I think when you talk about church polity and the way that authority and administration handles in the church, there's kind of a dual spirit to it. There is this concept that stake presidents and bishops have a, a form of final say over disciplinary proceedings in their local institutions. And so that's why we'll hear general authorities, when posed with questions about famous excommunications, they'll say, well, that's a local matter. Discipline is handled at a local level. And that will be what they say, even though we have historical precedent where general authorities have put their finger on the scales of that process at the local level, but the, the structure is still supposed to be that it's something handled at a local level. And, and because of that, and there's leeway and kind of this mantle of the judge of Israel that's placed on the sh shoulder of local leaders where they're allowed to take their own personal judgment on issues like that, where there is going to be a variety of ways that these things are handled. And it, it is the way that these things evolve is intergenerationally. And so it will be a slow process. It will be spotty at first. Occasionally, the church has large, huge shifts in paradigms, such as the revelation on the priesthood, which represented at the time a huge shift in the way that things were done that was, you know, institutionally worldwide. I think we're seeing a softer shift that's happening as um, 
the things we're talking about with Elder Holland and other stuff are starting to come out. Even even like what you're allowed to talk about from the temple. We've seen Bednar make statements in his presentations that have freed people up to talk a little bit more about things in the temple. And we've seen the church then demonstrate garments in public. Uh, and so all of these things serve to soften some of the edges that perhaps critics have had in the past. Um, and, and so I'm happy to see that when it happens, it helps people, I think, interact with the faith in a more transparent way. We're not there yet, but um, you know, good progress has been made. Can, can I? You kind of rushed through this part where you named the steel tools, and I just want to read these yeah. so folks hear them. Look at any and all information you can find from both official and unofficial sources. Steel tool. Uh, notice, by the way, the opposite of such, only trust us, is a wood tool. Talk to anyone about your questions and evaluate all answers. Again, only trust us, wood tool. Find out what other people who have had the same questions say, both current and former members. And by the way, I love the objectiveness of this. Like, go talk to both sides. One side wants you to only listen to insider information. The other side, by the way, we've always said, like, go read both sides. Like, listen to all the information on, have all the plates at the table, and then you figure out which one's right. Uh, trust your own moral compass for what is right and wrong and allow yourself to follow your conclusion, even if it means rejecting something that you previously thought was true. Those are the steel tools, only five of them. Yeah. And something that strikes me there, going back to that interview, the BBC interview with Elder Holland, mm. Sweeney, and I always get his first name wrong. Is it John Sweeney or is it Michael Sweeney? Anyway, the interviewer I, who did a fantastic job. He goes to the people who used to be members of the church, the ex-Mormons, and he talks to them. And then he talks to the people in the church, Elder Holland, and also the other fellow who was uh, the head of the, um, the PR department, right? Yeah. He finds out the truth from the people who've left the church about the Strengthening Church Members Committee. And he goes to the people who are in the church, and at first they dissemble which is a nice word for lie, and they deny its existence. Oh, I don't know about it. That right there, that one example undercuts the whole idea of if you wanted to find out the truth about Christianity, would you go to Peter or would you go to the Pharisees? Because right here, we know that the ex-Mormons told something to this reporter, Sweeney, that was not told him by church officials, and in fact, was initially denied by church officials before they admitted its truth. Yeah. So you need to talk to both sides. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess to, to wrap it up then, um, you know, in, in this thought experiment, you're thinking about your loved one in this other faith. Um, you're thinking about them trapped in this false religion. What would you want them to be given? Would you want them to be given wood tools or steel tools to apply to their crisis of faith? And I hope the answer is clear now. In a deceptive, high-demand religion, wood tools would keep them trapped and bound, where steel tools would empower them to escape. In an honest religion, wood tools would typically not be employed because deception is at the heart of every wood tool. If they were employed, they would simply keep seekers less informed. Steel tools would empower the seeker to learn more about their faith, blemishes and all, and the individual would be free to stay or go as their conscience directed. So 
having gone through this entire exercise now, you know, the article is called, you know, fix your faith crisis with one weird trick. Well, the one weird trick is simply put that in, in examining doubts about your own religion, you should only rely on answers to your questions, which have the power to discern truth from error. Uh, and that carries with it all of the explanatory, you know, pathways that we've gone down about understanding why if, you know, if you were in a false controlling paradigm and you got a particular type of answer and then you heard that type of answer from your own religious leaders, then that, that tells you that's a red flag, that something's up and you need to look more. And sometimes when they're telling you, don't talk to this person, don't read that book, that's a red flag. And you should say, well, hold on, let me determine whether or not that information is pertinent to me. And, and when you learn more about some other controlling religions that you can clearly see are unhealthy, um, then it gives you a pattern of how such religions behave. And then if you start to recognize that in your own, in your own faith, then you can at least try to draw boundaries between your own agency, your own autonomy, and what they are trying to control you with so that you can have a relationship with the faith that's set on your own terms, even though sometimes that's made difficult by the characteristic of the faith. So that is, in a nutshell, I encourage everyone, if you're interested in kind of getting to the nitty and gritty on this, then certainly there's a link to the article that I think Bill put as a part of this and, um, you know, certainly include that. I've put on my channel me reading this article verbatim. This is included, this presentation is included most of, of that as well. Um, and so well, and with that said, any questions or comments? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll take some calls, but I, you didn't include the ending. I thought we were going to learn the one secret <laughs> to fix our faith crisis. Yeah, that was just a little fun I was having with the writing of it, because the whole paradigm of this article was those ads that you get that are like the one weird thing, and then you're like, oh, I'm going to learn that. You click on it, just like, but wait, let me tell you this first. Let me tell you this first. And then at the end, it's just something where you have to buy the book in order to get the actual yeah. thing. Oh. Uh, and I hate that. <laughs> I've never clicked on it, so I didn't know about that. But I definitely have seen those kinds of things all over the place. Once One weird trick to fix you know, anything that's wrong XYZ. with you or your world. Hey, can I tell you, this is my comment for Let you. Let me give the number out really quick, RFM, just so, because we don't have any Which calls right the after the number. So, yep. So uh, you can join in the call-in portion of the show by calling 662-667-6667. That's also known as 662-Mormons. Uh, and there's obviously a URL there if you need to do it some other way, but uh, hopefully folks will call in. I, I really think this is just a, a beautiful tool to figure out when you're being tricked into holding false beliefs continually and when and what tools can help you get out of that uh that circular reasoning so thanks jonathan and, and oh and i guess the the other parting thought that i would have is that this this article speaks a lot about religion it uses the word religion it uses false faith and i think if i were to write it again today i would probably instead of using um religion i i would talk about groups and movements and include religion under the umbrella of political and social groups and movements because all these things that you're talking about can be found in even non-religious paradigms there's ways that wood tools show up in um, secular groups and um, when you you know when i first in in 
went on my journey to understand how cults operate. There's a, a book by Robert Lifton that talks about totalism and uh, thought reform, and he wasn't studying religions. He was studying the political movement in China that um, resulted in, you know, things like the Cultural Revolution over there. And that's where he started to formulate some of these things like thought-terminating cliches. It was not in a religious paradigm. And so from the beginning, understanding how social movements, religious movements can control people, their thoughts, their identities, and really distort that the way that they see themselves in the world world, it, it's not confined to religion. And so I would probably expand it to do that. So that's the only thing I have to say. Love it. Okay. RFM, if you're ready, I'll take, we got one call here. We'll start with that one. Oh, I wanted to make my comment, but you please, can, we no, can please, take no, no, the please, phone call. Ahead. We can no, no, take please. the phone call. We don't no, have to leave no, them waiting for no, half an hour your, like we did no, no, last week. No, no, no. Make Nothing's comment, more important than there. RFM's comment. Well, thank you for recognizing that. Okay. Then I'll go ahead. No, please. because this was uh, somewhat revelatory to me. Uh, although it's 20 years ago, and it connects with what you said, but in a way that I did not expect. Now, Carrie Schertz, who's watching avidly, is going to probably resonate with this. But 20 years ago, I spent several years combing through extra biblical scripture, okay? Stuff that was accepted by somebody or other as scripture. There's New Testament Apocrypha, okay? And that's two volumes that are like that. If you'll hang on just a second here, I'm going to try not to spill my Diet Coke while I'm bringing the books up here. Oh, what's this? Traditions about the early life of Abraham. That was a big one. Excuse me. I'm just going to put that one on the floor. <laughs> Where did those this words is, uh, come from? This is one of two volumes of Pseudepigrapha. So this would be Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. Where did uh, those words Charles, come from? Charles, personal friend of mine. And here's another one, which is a bit similar, but this is by Charles Worth. Is that true? Yeah, Charles Worth. Uh, not related. And this is one of two volumes, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, right? Apocalyptic literature and testaments and all this stuff. My gosh. And my whole goal, I bet you can guess what my goal was. It wasn't to find out what these ancient people believed. It was to find proof of Mormonism and connections to find Mormon doctrine, Mormon teachings, any connection I possibly could in these extra biblical writings and there's a lot of them and i spent so long doing this i can't tell you and after a while i began to realize that what i was doing was i'm winnowing i'm winnowing i'm winnowing and i'm trying to find that nugget that gold nugget that connects with the church and i did that assiduously and if i'm to be honest five percent of the hundred percent that i read five percent tops was useful and that's probably being too generous. It's probably more like three, two percent, right? But I'm folk. Oh, you're doing Texas sharpshooter. Sharpshooter, right? sharpshooter fallacy. And you are you're in sharpshootering. Texas, so that's apropos. Yes. And so, wouldn't that work in every other religion? Wouldn't the Jehovah's Witnesses be also searching books, trying to find pieces of their religion in old text? No, they might, but also they're not a restorationist. But still, yeah, they might. I'm not aware of that as much. But then I don't know Jehovah's Witnesses as much as I know Mormonism. So that's a good point. But the whole thing is I'm starting to realize this. And as I'm reading all this other stuff that doesn't line up with Mormonism, in search of my quest for the 3% that does, mm -hmm. it begins to dawn on me that any religious faith, any system of belief could do the same thing with the same materials and have at least as good a percentage of what I was able to come up with for Mormonism as they would be able to come up with for 
whatever their particular religious beliefs was. And then I thought, this is pointless, this exercise that I'm engaged in. And believe me, after you've done this much research and this much reading, it's tough to confront to yourself and say, boy, this was all a waste of time. But at least it taught me that lesson. And that's an important lesson. But it was when I read your article again this week in preparation for tonight's show that I realized that's a wood tool. Hmm. I mean, how many apologetic books have been written? Hugh Nibley and others trying to connect Mormonism with the Bible as well, but also extra biblical things. Dead Sea Scrolls, that was huge when I joined the church 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Nagamati Library. And that's not even the New Testament Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha yeah. that I'm talking about here. Dead Sea Scrolls, All, yeah. Yeah, it was huge, right? And we could come up with a couple of forced and somewhat um, remote connections with Mormonism and the Dead Sea Scroll community. And that was like, wow, we've got it. These were Mormons. These were Mormons who lived out there in the Dead Sea. They've got the baptismal font right there. There's a picture of it. And you can imagine people going down into the water. And what was it called? The washings. They talk about it in washings. And, of course, washings are very common in the Jewish religion. And this is Judaism, right? It's an offshoot of Judaism. Yeah. And uh, But, no, that becomes baptisms, right? We read washings, we interpret baptisms because that's mm-hmm. the, that's how devoted we are to this idea of finding the connections. But this is all just wood tool nonsense. Yeah, all the writings of Hugh Nibley, and I'm sorry to say that because you know he put an awful lot of effort. He put more effort into his writings than I did in reading this stuff. I'll tell you, and <laughs> it's all just a wood tool. Even where they are legitimate, the three to five percent that might be legitimate and not strained, anybody could do that for any religion and any system of religious beliefs. So it becomes a wood tool. What do you think about that, Jonathan? Well, I think you're spot on with that. And and they lean into it even more. I think the famous statement by um, the Egyptologist, um, where uh, I forget his name, he's, um, but he he said, you know, I approached the study of the Book of Abraham and Carrie Egypt. Carrie Mulestein. Yeah, Carrie Mulestein. With an emphasis with on the, the mule. I start out with the assumption that the church is true, the Book of Mormon is scripture, it is what it says it is, and then I look for ways to fit the evidence to that paradigm. And And so I start out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and anything else, excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true, and on these points we'll just have to agree to disagree, but we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find. When does his assumptions ever be allowed to be false? Never. That's the whole point. I sent him an email about this, and I said, "Really, uh, Carrie? I did. I, I have this email exchange with him because on his website you could like post a little thing." I said, "You know, a lot of people are giving you flack for saying that this because they're saying that you're engaging in confirmation bias. Uh, what do you have to say to that?" And he responded, and it's like several paragraphs. So he's like, "Yeah, yeah," and he leaned into it. 
he didn't say, oh, you know, uh, I didn't mean it that way. I, I was talking about the, the realm of faith. But, you know, in my academic Egyptological stuff, then I adhere to the principles of, you know, scientific method. And, and no, he was like, you know, yeah, we have to really work against all these critics. You know, we have to understand this. And so I, I, I have that. I've never really shown that email exchange because I, I feel like it, you know, he makes his livelihood in the world of academia. And um, can you pull it up I now know, and read I, it to us? <laughs> I could find it, um, but he—I I don't know. I—I I, I keep hoping that he'll come out with another thing that will maybe soften his position on that. But it doesn't happen. Peterson has same said the same thing, where he he approaches issues of the gospel. He uses the some Latin term like a priori true or something that, and so he you know it's like the entire realm of thought that you engage in already assumes that all the claims of the church are true and so you simply look for ways to fit the evidence to this assumed truth and it's just a way of fooling yourself staying deceived leaning into your confirmation bias like understanding that you have a bias but then doing this postmodern thing where you say well everyone has a bias therefore it's simply a, a, a issue of right. competing biases rather than saying no 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 the scientific method means yes we understand we have biases and so we endeavor intentionally to overcome those biases challenging things looking at through the lens of falsification rather than through the lens of positive evidence and, and so there's a whole you know philosophical epistemological discussion to be had about all that but you know just drill it down to they're relying on wood tools they're you know leaning into biases and fallacies. yeah that daniel c peterson quote reminds me of my favorite marx brothers movie um a night at the a priori <laughs> i'm a marx brothers fan and that is not an actual marx brothers movie so you can just it should have been yeah Okay, you guys ready for a couple of phone calls? I think it would be do really it. good to have some phone calls right now. Let's do it. So I'm going to turn uh, this up. Uh, Trevor, are you there? I am here. Awesome. Um, Go ahead. First of all, I'd like to say that I will gladly stay on the line for hours on hold for RSM because uh, my stuff is not going to be as brilliant as what he just said. So. Okay, Trevor, you have my attention. Go ahead, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so m my question is for Jonathan. Um, I know that you've spent some time with the Midnight Mormons, and I just want to know if you've um, talked to them about these wood tools versus uh, steel tools and what their thoughts on it. I think they use Play-Doh tools. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have. I mean, I haven't had them read this article or anything like that. But if you watch the several episodes that I've had with them, I've asked them pointed questions about other faiths. And when you hear these arguments from other faiths, how do you reconcile that with um, that? But the approach that they've taken is really to lean into the statement by Gordon B. Hinckley that the point of the Mormon church is not that it's the one true church, but that we have more truth and that we invite other faiths to take the truth that they have and add it to ours. And so what they have said is, well, I'm not going to look at 
Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses as harmful or wrong or false, and so I don't have to engage in your thought experiment. And this went so far as to have um, one of them show up on a podcast with an actual former Scientologist who himself had been living in like literal slavery about the thing because they had gone to Scientology headquarters and and described it as a pleasant experience, and they didn't know why all the haters of Scientology were so critical of it. Um, right, I got the missionaries some... that met them at the front desk, gave them a tour, yes. and appeared very pleasant. Yes, and and so. I, you know, I strained my relationship with the Midnight Mormons. They felt that they were a little bit ambushed in that. I strained my relationship with the Scientologist because he didn't know that the guy was going to be as um, rhetorically pugilistic as he was. Um, I think so I, is the word I, you're looking I, for. No, I I could have handled that episode better, but it was um, it was a fascinating discussion. You know, it, it's my intention really to be on good terms with the Midnight Mormon guys because as much as it's fun to point finger at them and criticize them and ridicule what they're doing, what they're doing is far more effective than FAIR is, just in terms of putting a, t a, a, a bold form of Mormonism that is, you know, even if we disagree with the the arguments that they bring to bear, they're still willing to have discussions with people about it in a way that FAIR Mormon never was. Um, and, and I think we can do better at engaging in that discussion by, um, you know, maybe just willing to let the discussion happen and be the focus of it and letting some of the interpersonal stuff not take center stage on that. But that's just my own philosophy on it. It's 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 more You're boring, probably right. perhaps. Yeah, well, be careful <clears throat> with those comments because the last time I complimented Kwaku for being willing to go out and have uh, debates with other people, I got crucified for it. Yeah. that I, I don't know. I yeah. mean, all I, three I, of the guys on Midnight Mormons are entertaining. So I'll give him that. Yeah, perfect. I'll, Which three are those? Craig uh, Kwaku, <laughs> Brad Whitbeck, and um, you know the the yes yes. Host Who's the third the one? Who's the third one? <sighs> yes, Cordon Yeah, Cardinalis. Cardinalis. Curly. Yeah. yeah, they're they're great guys. I mean, they 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 have they have charisma. Whatever you want to talk about them, so. All right, thank All you. All right, so Trevor, any other questions or let's focus um, any other questions about I just the Midnight Mormons, say, All right. <laughs> I just want to say I would agree with you. It I, we should give them credit for even being open to give the have the discussion because that is such a stumbling block with Mormons in general. Yeah. But thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Trevor. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Like Daniel C. Peterson will so not again. go debate anybody. You know. He's very boisterous and very full of himself as long as he can't be asked any questions. And the he same with uh, his protege, uh, Stephen Smoot. Hmm. Right? Stephen, what's his middle name? I okay. think his middle initial is a B. <laughs> okay. But I can't well, okay. remember the middle name in its entirety. <laughs> That's good. Excellent. Um, okay. <clears throat> but uh, they, they just sound off, you know, oh, we've got the, I've got the truth and I can totally defend it. But when it comes to being asked, well, will you come on the show to defend it? No, they will not. They absolutely will not. They are paper tigers. They won't even mention and, our names or they won't mention anybody's podcast. They won't talk about where the opposing arguments are. They mm -hmm. do not want you to read both sides. Right. Okay. And well, you know I mean, let's power when they will not mention your name. 
So you guys are are talking about these egotistical church apologists not willing to debate anyone. You're willing to debate. We've seen that already. So I'm I'm going to act like Don King here for a little bit um, in spirit only, which is uh, uh, are you guys willing to accept a debate challenge? Because just this week a debate challenge was thrown down the gauntlet on the floor for you, Bill Real, and Radio Free Mormon to debate one Jacob Hansen and his counterpart at the. He is an up-and-coming, uh, not Midnight Mormons, just a different thing. If you go to, uh, what is it, like Thoughtful Saints or something like that, it's like one of those YouTube channels. And he's been making inroads in having discussions about Mormonism and pushing back probably more fiercely and uh, forcefully than even the Midnight Mormons and willing to engage people. And he's issued you a challenge to a debate terms to be set forthwith. Just, just FYI, uh, he, mm-hmm. I agreed. So Jacob, I reached out to Jacob a few years ago. Oh, is and, this the mentally unstable one, Bill? Uh, I don't know that. I don't know okay. that. So okay. I reached out to Jacob. I think Jacob's been on um, Where Will You Go, one of the podcasts under our umbrella. But okay. But here's the thing. With Jacob, I, I said, I would love to have you on and have a long-form conversation where we talk about the problematic issues in the church. He said, I'll come on, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about when people leave the church, why they are so set against the church, right? He wanted to change the topic to something that was suitable to him. And and so he now tells people that I backed out. I just didn't find the conversation to be that interesting, to be honest. But well, I, I like would, I I have no you're saying um, he's a liar, Bill. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm okay. saying that he's he's telling a I, version of the events that's best for him. And I'm well, I haven't actually him. heard That's him. Like his his challenge in this regard did not include that backstory. I have no idea of what contact he's had with I, y'all. I would love but, Jacob's welcome to come on. I'd love to have a two hour sit down. He can bring a person with him, and RFM and I will ask them questions about I, the see, problematic. But issues. the thing is, that doesn't matter. Like, yeah. like you guys did not initiate this. He laid down. He said, and he he's interested in a structured debate format yeah, where there's ass. a moderator. Well, this just this is what he's done. <laughs> you guys can decide whether or not to accept it. What well, he's hey, he set some parameters. Just a Jonathan, sure. I hate to interrupt. When Maven pops in like Barbara Eden into oh, the show. Okay, go ahead. What we typically do is we we think she's got something to say. I do, and so we I say, do. <laughs> Maven, what do you have to add? Sorry, I just I have an interaction with Jacob that just oh. I, makes me laugh every time I think about it. We Tell us. I, I first started engaging with him on Twitter a year ago, and then Twitter was just way too fun for me. So I, I rarely go there now because I can lose all my time there. Um, it's the best to give Mormons to just really show, because you know, the short format, you, you right. can't do the apologetics. So you kind of have to say the quiet part out loud and they are just willing to do it. And Jacob's one of them. So anyway, um, Jacob was talking, we were talking about morality because I can't have that as an atheist, right? So I was, we, I, and then we got into talking about consent. So I just was trying to throw out just a completely hypothetical situation where let's say you have a 37 year old man who is a, you know, claiming to be a prophetic voice speaking for God and uh, proposes marriage to a 14-year-old girl. Hypothetical, total hypothetical. I'm just making it up. Um, Does this 14-year-old have consent? And boy, did he really try to weasel out of that one? And ultimately he did because he tried to, you know, like just go all over the place and I kept coming back to it. I I was taking a page out of Bill's book. I was like, can you please, can we go back to this, go back to the scenario? Can you please tell me if this 14-year-old has consent or not. And then uh, all of a sudden, 
he announces, and I've got the screenshots to prove it. I am going on a social media fast. I can't answer your question. <laughs> oh my God. Where did he learn I'm that? Serious. I was, yeah, it was like, Good tool. we're going at it. And then just, I, you know, and I was like, are, are you kidding? Like, you know what this looks like, right? You understand that everyone's seeing your response, that that is your response looks bad and he, and he defended it though but he's just like no it's a good everyone should do a social media fast from time to time which which is true but it boy what a time to just, i cannot answer your question i can tweet and respond to you pointing out you know yes. what this looks like but I, I still can't answer your question with a yes or even a no but he did offer to, for me to email him he gave he, he gave his email address which i did email him and you know what people get busy i am terrible at, at answering emails so there's definitely people in the yeah. chat probably that who does like, email okay. anymore that's like 1990s right? but um yeah anyway so i gave him three months and then before checking in with him again because he did not answer then mm -hmm. either and yeah he still hasn't answered but anyway well that, it sounds like me. jacob pulled a brave sir robin on you yeah i i think i just <laughs> well maybe i would i would say in my experience having these types of discussions it's helpful in your own mind and to understand the situation that the goal may not be to win an argument but if, if you've laid out an argument that he doesn't have a good answer for, then it's something that he will ponder and there's a chance that he'll shift his position in the future. And, um, and that can be seen as a victory and you should be open yourself to also having that happen to you if somebody lays out an argument. And I'm not saying you particularly, I'm just saying right. any of us that engage in, in these things. And, and I, Jacob has shifted. He's softened a little bit. He came onto the scene a few years ago and was far more arrogant and... Um, difficult to have a conversation with than even <laughs> probably even than what you're talking about so you probably even got softer version of jacob so um, you're saying that jacob used to be even more arrogant than he is now yeah is yeah i mean he still is a complete egotistical blowhard and i can say that because i'm an egotistical blowhard but um but if you he's fun if anything else something or you don't want to i just feel like it would have been a lot more honest for him to say you know i need to think about that or or you know will you, yeah. will you give me the space totally to think about that? instead i would like, pay I just decided to go on a social media fast i'm getting off everything it just was wild i couldn't believe it i would pay good money to watch a no holds barred grudge match between jacob and maven what do you think i don't folks? think i'm good live but i'd sometimes i don't know it would Oh, you're too good live. <laughs> you're very, very good live. You are Jonathan, excellent. You yeah. are like have a scalpel wit. I need time you to just think about things. That. That's the thing. But thank you, Radio Free Mormon. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you guys keep talking. I'm gonna jump. Okay. Bye bye. If, as you pose that to Maven, I just want to tweak that a bit. Which is when I'm in a conversation with any of these folks, Quaku or Jacob Hansen or Dan Hardy or whoever. I, I kind of know up front, I'm not going to change their mind. They're not going to change my mind. The audience for me is who I'm speaking to. I'm laying out an mm -hmm. argument and Dan Hardy's responding with his and everybody's watching and anybody who's starting to think critically or already is, will be able to discern for themselves, which argument holds water and which one doesn't, which one is wood tools and which one isn't, which one's based on facts and reasonable mm -hmm. logic and thinking and which one's not. And I, I always kind of in my head just worry about the people who are reading it, not the person I'm engaging at all. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. it was Genghis Khan who said, it's not enough for me to be victorious. I must crush my enemies. <laughs> what do you think about well, that, I, Jonathan? I think that's overstating what Bill's trying to make. And that that is a lot of, you know, I think 
all of these social media debates and arguments have a performative element to it. And we're engaging in a discussion that is a competition of ideas, not really for just the person we're talking with, but for everybody watching. And there's bad elements of that because it, it can lead us to perhaps be less charitable to someone if we feel like we're representing, you know, something that has to be defended at all costs. And we may be different from an in-person conversation. But it also means that the form of your argument may be to draw out perhaps the more extreme defenses that your opponent may have just so that people can understand what ends people have to go to to defend a thing like i you know i have had jacob hansen on my channel and i went through the is it culty assessment with him because i wanted to get oh. a believer's perspective where we go through all the different dimensions of cultiness and and they tell me whether or not their experience in the church fit what a cult might do and so i have a five-hour conversation where we go through that whole thing and i i wasn't you know i would challenge him in terms of i would i would say well some people say this what do you say to that and he was very honest and the thing about jacob is you may get some other uh people who mealy mouthed some of the stuff but jacob on some of that stuff that people don't want to talk about in the church he will boldly proclaim it and so, so if you just like want to Mike say Tannehill. okay yeah ex exactly actually except that he he may even be a little bit easier to talk with than mike Tannehill because he'll stay with it now he does have um like the question that he starts with with maven is one of his favorite ones to go to which is that he has a perspective that if you have let go of your belief in the church and in god then you cannot be a moral person because all morals stem from some divine source. That is kind of an a priori assumption that he carries into it. And he's had some atheists push back on that, but that's a favored place for him to go. And so people who see that would say, well, I need to have a good grasp as an atheist about where I root my moral principles from, because that's going to be a, a, a part of the debate with him. So I, I think it's good to stretch your mind as somebody who engages in these things, um, you know, with a competent, Debater, and you, we may hate the fact that he can be gruff in sometimes and dismissive, but he's engaging, and that's what we're trying to get people like Dan Peterson and them to do. And you know, youth and young, and even some of the older people are more likely to listen to discussions with Jacob Hansen than they are with Peterson, because he's he's much more engaging and charismatic. Yeah. Cool. Let's uh, another call here. Wayfaring is, I believe, the name of the caller. Wayfaring, are you there? Hi, yes, I am. Um, I wanted to talk about an experience I had um, where I learned that members of the church know that the church does not stand up to scrutiny and logic. Um, I went to law school several years ago, and in addition to a lot of um, silly comments I would get about uh, being a woman going to law school, a bishop said to me that he didn't know very many people who went to law school and who graduated with their testimony intact. Um, and I thought that was a funny thing for him to say. I, it kind of felt like just another comment to kind of discourage me, a woman, <laughs> from going to law school. But right. um, when I went to law school I, and, and obviously graduating through it, I learned why. It's because there are a lot of, um, I mean, I think you'd call them steel tools that you learn when you're in law school. You learn how to get really deep with original sources. You learn the rules of evidence. And I know that RSM did a series on rules of evidence um, as applied to Mormonism. That was really fun. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, you learn how to follow logic. You learn how to play devil's advocate um, to kind of strengthen your position. Um, so, 
So, oh, Lucy, so we're, we're going to need our FMs to see us after did. this. <laughs> Sorry. I just want to hear our sure, FMs yeah. this after this. Nope. Yeah. Um, I, so, I mean, the bishop was like tacitly telling me that, you know, the kinds of skills I was going to learn in law school were not going to serve me. Um, but my question then is, you know, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of members of the church, a lot of really high ranking members of the church make it through law school and are really successful in the law. And so I'm, I'm interested in whatever the personal barrier is that uh, people are able to put up where they're applying different logic in their personal lives versus their professional lives. Um, and just what you all, what you all think of that. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Your thoughts Great are question. Good. I mean, obviously uh, there are many notable leaders in the church who are graduates of law school. Bruce R. McConkie comes to mind. Oh, James Faust is another, I mean, the wife of, um, and I apologize for not remembering her name, but it's um, Elder Renland, right? Elder Renland's wife was a, a practicing attorney as well. And I'm sure I'm, I'm just not Christofferson elder Oaks. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oaks. I'm sorry about that. Elder Oaks. I apologize. I forgot you were a lawyer for a second. So <laughs> the thing is that it seems like it's okay, especially for men. Okay. And I don't know that your Bishop would have had the same problem with you going to law school. If you were a man, it's almost like keeping you in your appropriate lane as a woman. I can't read his mind. But I will say that the problem with law school is a different problem than divinity school, where you start learning about issues related to the Old Testament and the compilation of scripture and all those other kinds of things that ended up having Bart Ehrman lose his faith. But law school is designed to teach you how to think. And that's the main difficulty that it has when it comes to religious concepts, is that if it teaches you how to think and you apply those tools to your religious concepts, then they start falling one by one. I didn't have that happen. I did not have that happen. Uh, and it's one thing where I've been thinking about doing this TikTok video, okay? And the TikTok video would be like this. It's me walking along and me saying, you know, I honestly used to believe in my heyday of Mormon apologetics that the LDS church was the one church that you could go into on Sunday without checking your common sense at the door. And then I go like this. <laughs> because I will swear to you on a stack of Books of Mormon that I thought that sincerely, devoutly, over and over and over again. Everybody else had to check their common sense when they went into the door of their church, but not the LDS church that I went to. And now I look back on it and I go, how on earth could I have ever been so naive? But that was while I was a practicing lawyer after graduating from law school. I don't know if that helps at all or if that addresses your question, Wayfaring. How about you, Bill or Jonathan? Your thoughts? Your thoughts, John? Um, you know, belief is a really powerful thing, especially when you're shaped and formed by it and it makes a part of your identity and your sense of purpose. And we compartmentalize things. We can apply an analytical mind to aspects of our life that, you know, applying the same thing to the area of faith would destroy it. And, and we don't do that for various reasons. And, you know, for the people that are leaders in the church and attorneys, 
Um, you know, their concept of belief and faith and what the church actually is may not be the same as the typical church chapel Mormon. Um, they may have a totally different concept of what a religion is and what their role in the religion is. And so we can't all assume that they believe in the exact same paradigm that we do. Um, Can I also and I'll suggest just, that within Mormonism, first off, Mormonism is an incredibly legalistic religion. Mm -hmm. And I think that may be shared by other high demand, I don't know, fundamentalist religions, I'm not sure, but I sure am sure about Mormonism. It is a very legalistic religion. And it is possible that the same part of a person's character that attracts them to the law mm -hmm. and go to law school may also attract them to Mormonism and its legalism. So maybe mm -hmm. lawyers might be more prone to be faithful Mormons than non-lawyers. Just a thought. Yeah, and and if you're in a system where you've been given the stake presidency because of like, oh, I must be really good and, and respected, the general authority made me the stake president. And then you get to be an admission president in an area authority, then you know, oh my, you know, it's and then like if you, like if you let go of your faith then you lose the prestige you lose the sense of uh you know eliteness that's part of it. it i it's you know there's only a few examples in other faith traditions where someone at high levels of authority were brave enough to say you know what this is wrong it's false it's fake um one of them is uh there's a former the jehovah's Jay witnesses Death, right? have yeah yeah there's jehovah's witnesses have a you know a council kind of like our 12 apostles that um sits at the top and there was the governing one member body the governing body who was a governing body member and he got out and he wrote a book about it called i think uh crisis of faith or something like that you can you know the book is a little hard to get a hold of but we have an example of someone at a high level who dared to step down and it's it's a brave thing to do but there's just so much tied into this legalistic church that i'm sure has all kinds of ndas and all kinds of financial incentives and reputational incentives i i just don't think we're ever going to see that in the Mormon church. Well, By you know way, why John... that is, Jonathan? It's because e having you not read Matthew 24, I believe it is, where the Savior says that even the very elect shall be deceived. Wood tool. That's us. Yeah. But that works everywhere, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. That feeds um, our own ego. By the way, just recently... We never consider that we might be the elect that are being deceived. No, it's always somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> just recently, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, their TV guy, somehow was guy? removed he was removed in all of the videos with him like uh, something that was all gone too like something hmm. just happened where one of their top people uh the guy that was the face of all their television mm -hmm. programs this uh, is like the j-dubs version of the tits videos he's gone yeah kind of like tits yeah t-i-t-s the acronym hey, wait, this is the up. show by the way <laughs> that's this is the show i i want to make sure everybody understands the reference yeah. That's not mine. That was came up with by, oh, you're good friends, the Midnight Mormons. This is the show. It lasted, what, two months? Yeah, it was not renewed. But then <laughs> it, it didn't go into syndication. You can't find it on Nick at Night. No, no they just gone. got rid of them completely. And that's what yeah. reminded me of it when you were talking about this J-Dub guy, the news guy for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they just got he, he got rid of all of his videos. Did yeah, he do something, something wrong? I don't know the details. Did he produce a thriller video or something? Yeah. I don't know the details. I, I don't know. I haven't. Yeah. I haven't. Unfortunately, Lloyd Evans, who's the most prolific ex-Mormon YouTuber, has had a really rough spot over the last couple of years. There's been a lot of drama in the ex-Mor ex-J Dub community that. Uh, 
is it, you know it's it's difficult to to cover um you know i had a lot of respect for lloyd and everything that he's done and he's had some harsh criticisms that um some people feel very justified about so that their ex-mormon community is a little bit in shambles right now or so, ex but you said community yeah he's an ex-jehovah's witness this lloyd person right got yeah. it okay okay thank you wayfaring i'm gonna let you go as long as it doesn't have anything to do with trips to the philippines thank you all right, we got. I don't know what <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up our last call for the night. This is Ruben. No, Ruben. sorry, I think this might be Becky. Uh, is it Ruben or Becky? Because the call screen thing says both. Hello, I'm guessing Ruben. Hello, Ruben. Oh, turn off your mic. Dial. Did somebody butt dial the show? Hey, Ruben. Hello? Do you ever have somebody butt dial you and you're like listening in on a conversation and then you hold it really close to your ear so you can see if you can hear anything compromising? Yeah, maybe you can get some, some <laughs> gossip or something, huh? Ruben, you need to go get Hello? a sandwich. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just drop the call, I guess. I'm three. Sorry, Ruben or Becky, two. whichever you are. Becky. Becky, Becky, you're there. How are you? Excellent, Becky. I thought maybe Ruben was on the call because we heard something else, but go ahead. I think she hung up. That's the end of her. She All hung right. up on us just when she and got through. a moment too soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, you I don't know how long you usually go, um, but Midnight. There, there have been... There have been some criticisms about this article. I, I, you know, in some of the the defending groups, I posted that I was going to have this discussion and that I was interested in any criticisms and, and giving people a chance to read it. And there, there was a little bit of pushback and some people that found some um, difficulties with the essay. But we may be too close to the end. It's it's up to you if you want to go and and talk about those. Can you bit. just really, at a kind of a surface level, just tell us what what they are? Maybe list a few of them. Well, I think a lot of it address the idea that the the article poses kind of a black and white paradigm of true and false religions, and that um, that's not necessarily the way that religions put themselves out there. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that, because we, if you're raised in the church, you're given a sense of what it means to be a religion, and you kind of look at the landscape of religions and the believers in them, and you assume that they have the same legalistic, literalistic, concrete notion of what a religion is, how it derives from divine authority, and so you just assume that all these other religions are doing that, and then when you go and you spend some time in those other religions, that's not necessarily how the religions are set up, and in some cases there's much more of a community brought together under some shared values and, and shared stories that they don't take as concretely, historically, literally real, but still give people a sense of meaning and purpose and a reason to be together. And, and so I think there is something to be said about that. And that's where I, you know, this is, this is not the end of the conversation. I think there's more conversation to be had about what you do once you've gone through this process and, and how you then navigate the world outside of that. So Yeah, yeah Jonathan, you... as soon as you start talking about uh, pushback to your article being, you know, some religions are more uh, nebulous, they're not as uh, devout. I mean, they've already removed the entire subject from what it is you're talking about, which is high demand fundamentalist religions yeah. that are not like Unitarians, right? Mm -mm. They do. You know, I think this is a specious church. argument. Yeah. That was my what do you think, Jonathan? Think... Do you think it's specious? Uh, 
it's I'll difficult. Take that as a yes. It's it's yeah. I mean, in the starkest terms, you could say yeah. You know, we're talking about truth claims, factual claims, and then their implications for the claims of the church in terms of divine authority. I think that there's something about any religion. You know, if you go and you listen to all these cult documentaries, they'll usually have the first episode where they talk about the the positive good parts of the religion, and it deals with community and faith and helping each other and and purpose, and all those things can be found. You know, that's the honey in the trap of all those controlling religions, but it's also in healthier religions. And Mormonism, you know, if you if you have a spectrum of harmful religions and you have things like Jonestown and 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 Heaven's Gate on one end and Unitarians on the other end, Mormonism is not at the Unitarian end, but it's also not at the Jonestown end. You know, which it's end is in it between there. To? Well, I mean, I think that's which end is it closer either. to? Yeah, it's not. In the and and, and that is like, can you be a Mormon in good standing and be a cafeteria Mormon and disregard some stuff? And you can. And, and I think we're starting to see more and more people who are allowed that space. And um, you know the. The thing is that there's aspects of the faith that are programmed into its culture which are unhealthy, that rob people of agency, and that are definitely issues to be dealt with. But there are also aspects of that culture which encode things that do promote social cohesion, happiness, it promotes the ability to live in a pluralistic society. There are aspects of it that carry along with the religious tradition so that if, if you simply abandon the, tr the, the religion and the faith and everything that it stood for, then you may lose some of the benefits that aren't, de they aren't dependent on the divine claims of the religion, but they are still things that tend to promote happiness, stability, prosperity, and intergenerational um, accumulation of those factors in somebody's life. And there's still, that's something you still have to contend with. So you I think that that's kind of where I am in in my own thought processes, and so if anyone was ever to offer a criticism of this article, it might be along the same lines as that moment in the debate with RFM, where they say, okay, you, you've now destroyed the church, well, what are you going to offer them instead? And it, it may not be so much that you have to offer them that, but somebody really has to wrestle with you know, what are the good positive aspects that I can identify that I've gotten not only from Mormonism, but maybe from other faith traditions, and do I want to discard those as well, or do I want to think about how they there may be a purpose in a positive Elaine, aspect of it? Elaine de Botton, Atheism 2.0. It's mm -hmm. the same idea that, yes, religion transfers certain tools and technology that are useful, certain rituals that point us to the universe or point us to our inner self, point us to serve. But all the myth story, again, it's the only way to get this strong collaborative effort. But myth story also manipulates people and shames people and causes fear and hurts people. And so how do you untangle all of that and keep the useful stuff and people loyal to it that they keep going along and doing the thing showing up on Sunday <laughs> yeah. without the strong myths that say we're the one true place? It That's really difficult to do. And not very many people are experiencing success at that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, I mean, shortening the Sunday to two hours helps. <laughs> I'd one. Yes, like better. I said, back when they changed it from three hours to two hours. Thank you, President Nelson, for that revelation. I have never heard amongst the TBMs, the true believing Mormons, I've never heard so much joy out of having less of something they love so much. And if two well, is better than Jacob three, Hansen complained, is one better than really? two? Okay, I'm sorry. What, Bill? If if two is better than three, is one better than two? Is zero better than one? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. 
All right, that's all of our calls. Anything else? Uh, anything else you want to point out? I mean, I, it seemed like that was one or two points. If there's others that you thought were important, I'm happy um, to hear them. But we've probably gone a little long. See here. Um, no, I mean, I think. Uh, well, what what do you guys think? I'll, I'll send you the text of what the debate challenge was. Um, if you guys are interested in. They, they invited me to moderate if such a discussion happened, and they were interested in something that oh, had, good. was formal. Oh, Was formal in terms of it, you know, defined times, a response, and, and it was maybe a little bit more Why, structured than what happened you, there. Why do you think that side prefers debates and does not, other than Jim Bennett, does not want to get into a long-form conversation? Because um, if you ask Dan Peterson, any of these guys to engage that way, they do not want to touch it. Now, Peterson's done debates with, you know, Christian apologists. In or writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I've, well, even I seen, think... I've even seen Mormon debates with some of these guys. Uh, Van Hale or Dennis Van Hale. Peterson? and Not necessarily. Well, Peterson went on that news program with Dan Vogel, for instance. So this quick, yeah. hit them fast, say a Five few minutes. things, mm -hmm. hit some bullet points, move on. But very I think there people. there are probably there are probably I think midnight Mormons probably are in that category where they'd be less likely to go on your show and have a conversation on your terms. Uh, Jacob has been a lot more flexible in what he's willing to do. So if you were to say, you know, it it, it requires a little bit of flexibility on both sides, and and if you say, you know, hey, let's have a conversation, I think. On our side, we could be confident that we could just say, "Let's have a conversation." Whatever you want it to be about, that's yep. fine. And we know Amen. that in the con, as, as the conversation goes on, there's going to be some things come out that the audience will appreciate that there may be a better answer on one side than the other, and that will stand on its own. Right. And um, and so I, I think you know, if you wanted, I, if you preferred that to a debate, he'd probably be open to it. And I am only I RFM can do whatever he wants. I'm only open to conversations where I get to ask logical follow up questions, mm -hmm. and there is time to explore those. See, I'm only open yeah. to conversations where I get to ask illogical follow up questions. Yeah, well, then you should work for the other side. Well, I, I found my experience in that, is it culty discussion? It was a long form discussion. I was able to ask follow up questions. And I think on our side, we just have to be willing to accept their answer. And even when we ask a harsh follow-up question and they don't, you know, they don't give where we want them to give, just say, okay, you know, that that's fine. We, we have a difference of opinion on that. Let's keep going. There can be a temptation to say, well, you know, you are problematic for X, Y, and Z since you think this way or that way. And that might not serve the discussion as well as just saying, okay, I understand your position and let's go on to the next subject or something like sure. that. Sure. And I'm, I'm happy to do that too. But Debates for me are just problematic for getting to the truth. Everybody seems to leave kind of feeling how they did when mm -hmm. they came in. It doesn't. Well, I, I'm in the middle of um, Peter Bogosian, Bogosian who uh, created the street book, How to Have, yeah, Street Epistemology and How to Have Difficult Conversations. He's been doing a series on YouTube where he'll go to a college campus and he will lay out five lines or seven lines on the street and he'll invite people, he'll, he'll put a proposition up. Um, and it's a controversial proposition. And then he'll ask people to stand on the middle line, which is neutral. And then on the count of three, he'll say, everybody go to where line you want to stand on. And he has uh, slightly agree, agree, strongly agree, and then slightly disagree, disagree, and strongly disagree. And then people will go to those different lines. And then he will have a conversation with somebody on one of the lines and say, what would it take for you to move to the next line? Why are you on the line that you're on and not on the other line? And then use that as a framework for establishing whether or not people's 
positions reflect the thought that they've put into those positions. And I'm in the middle of creating an online tool that will allow us to do that in a streaming show. And so that's a paradigm that I'm hoping to get some people who um, maybe are on different sides of an issue to get together and talk. And then we can invite the audience to stand on a line and then shift as the discussion goes so that you can see in real time how your audience maybe has love uh, thought their perspective different. So yeah, that'd be beautiful. I'm hoping to have that in the next couple of months and I'll let Sweet. you guys know. Okay. Uh, I don't have anything else necessarily. Anything else from you, RFM? No, nothing for me. I will say, of course, I say no, nothing. But next week, next week, hopefully, if all the stars align, we're going to have Dan McClellan on the show. And Dan McClellan uh, used to work for BYU. And he since retired from that at an obscenely young age. And he has achieved great success and notoriety doing TikTok videos about of all things, Bible scholarship. Yeah. And very well, intelligent, you, very educated, informed person. So I'm really excited yeah, to have that just, conversation. At the end of the conversation, think about whether or not the phrase data over dogma is a wood tool or a steel tool. That's uh, yeah. That's going to be an interesting He thing. definitely does steel tools and stays away from arguments that involve him having to use wood tools. Wait a second. Wait a second. Hang on a second. Jonathan, are you saying that he has used the expression data over dogma? That's his whole thing. And are you suggesting that that's a wood tool? I'm suggesting it's worthy of consideration. Yeah, I think what do you consider it to be? Well, I think when you say data over a dogma, you assume that because data exists and it requires somebody to convey data. And in the conveyance of that data, you are informed nice. by certain assumptions. And if the nature of your assumptions are never examined, then you can go around talking about data over dogma all you want and, and spritz the, the air with the you know, air freshener of data over dogma so that, and no one will ever look to see whether or not your interpretation of your data is infused with dogma. But then you can say, no, 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 my interpretations are simply data. There's no dogma. And I don't know. It's just, there's a way that um, he approaches issues that rubs me the wrong way. And uh, so I am I am eager to see your conversation. Okay. Oh. Well, hopefully he's not watching this now. Or other, he might be canceling. However. No, no, no. However, are you kidding me? No, he, he has the courage of his convictions. My goodness. He's a very intelligent and articulate and, dare I say, handsome man. But it, you're right that I think that push to its extreme, anything like a slogan, bumper sticker slogan like data versus dogma has a danger of becoming its own dogma. I am scripture. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, it's just said, said in a non-religious way. Okay, well, I'll ask him about that on next week's show. And I will certainly attribute the question to you, as I should. <laughs> That's okay, but I would be wary because he has taken to wearing Marvel t-shirts as like his thing, and he stole that from you. So you oh, need so to nice. have that out with him. You know, they, they say it's, it's, it's the sincerest Let's form of flattery. <laughs> okay. All right, you guys. Have uh, an excellent night. Streeter, thank you very much for coming on and, and helping people see how wood tools work and 
what their gauge, hey, what they're I'm, designed to I, do. And I got to tell you guys, I am so impressed that you guys have just kept up with this show every week with new content, with engaging content. It's really kind of been a spark of life in the X-Men I'm impressed you're watching and listening. There's, there's, there's always something on Wednesday night to look forward to. The community that you guys have in your discussions is great. And the broad, you know, range of people that you have on is great. And um, I'm just so glad that you guys have, have done that. And I just want to make sure that I've had a chance to tell you that on air. Yeah. Thank you I got so the, much. I, I appreciate that Wednesday nights it used to be Barney Miller now it's Mormonism live yeah. yeah have a great week everybody